What about us taking an adventure east? Like Queens? Yeah, you know, I, I, I kind of, I didn't allude to what I was, why we were taking two straight weeks, well, taking three weeks off between episodes instead of two weeks, but yes, uh, I try to go every single year to the Western Southern Open Tennis Tournament in Cincinnati, Ohio, I was able to do, I think it's the ninth year in a row that I've been there, so it it is, like you say, an annual tradition, it was a, a lot of fun, pretty much every top player was there, I think... I was say, Djokovic was the winner, right? Jok- on the inside. Yeah, Jok- Djokovic and Federer were in the finals. Um, N- Nadal ended up pulling out of the tournament after he won the Toronto-Montreal tournament that happens right before. <clears throat> so, missed out on seeing him, but to have Djokovic and Federer there, as well as Andy Murray, though he did lose in the first round, and, and you know, some really spectacular tennis there for the, the full, you know seven to nine days that, that I was there it was a, a lot of fun. It's like you mentioned, it's an annual tradition that I get to do at the end of every summer. Um, hopefully, hopefully it can continue, you know, hitting, hitting a decade next year. So that'll, that'll be fun. That'd be great. And what happened on the women's side? Yeah, no, on the, on the women's side, you know, there was a little bit of a, I, I hate to say boring cause that's not the right word, but I think fewer well-known names, uh, lasted particularly long. Caroline Wozniacki lost out in the first round. Simona Halep, I believe, um, was in the finals. I'm actually forgetting right now. So I actually didn't see the last day of the tennis. Um, I left. I know she was in the finals against Sabalenka. I can't remember who she played in the finals, but I think she might have lost. I'm not sure. But there was still some some quality tennis. Serena was around for a few rounds before she okay. uh, lost to Petra Kvitova in a very good match that I watched. Um Kvitova did make it to the semifinals. I don't know. I don't want to bore our listeners too much well, with tennis, especially since there's not necessarily overlap between movies and tennis. But um, I, I'm, hey, I am... Battle of the Sexes was really good last year. I don't know if you ever saw it. I did. I know I did. I did, yes. Uh, Steve Carell and was it Emma... Emma uh, Stone, yeah. Emma Stone, right. Emma Stone playing Billie Jean King. And I forget who Dave Carell's character was. Uh, or sorry, Steve uh, Carell. Bob- Bobby Riggs, yeah. Bobby Riggs, that's right, yeah. yeah. Good, that was good. Self-proclaimed male chauvinist, but yeah, <laughs> it was very good. Gosh. Yeah, uh, and, there, and there was also, uh, is it the, Ma- there's a McEnroe, Borg McEnroe movie that came out this year, right, I think. Right, with Shia LaBeouf playing <laughs> yeah. McEnroe. And then the guy who's playing, I think, Mikhail Blomquist in the in, in the new, like, reboot. Oh, okay. uh, he he's he, playing Borg? He played Borg. Um, Interesting. I can't remember his name, which is, I think it was literally the first time I'd ever heard of him. But yeah, that that's been my last, or that's the reason why we we took an extra week off. It was our like late summer vacation, I think, as I joked last time on the podcast. But now we're back. We've both seen quite a few movies, even though I was gone for for over a week, uh, and love to talk about those today. Yeah, well, you know, like you're saying, to make up for the fact that we 
uh, took an extra week off. We have, uh, I, I guess I would say, an extra crop of movies to talk about today. And in, in a little bit, we're going to be talking about um, Black Klansman, which is the latest Spike Lee joint. Um, and we're also going to be talking about Slenderman and Three Identical Strangers. We'll have shorter reviews of those. Um, but first up on this episode, it is the surprise box office winner from last weekend. It looks like it's actually going to take the box office again this weekend. Uh, and that's the film Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, Crazy Rich Asians is based on the first novel in Kevin Kwan's best-selling series of books, and it's a romantic comedy with a boldly Eastern flair. Uh, directed by John M. Chu, the movie stars Constance Wu as Rachel, a college economics professor who is in a long-term relationship with a Singaporean man named Nick Young, played by travel show host Henry Golding. Now, as the movie opens, their relationship seems to be blossoming, and Nick invites Rachel to Singapore to meet his family while he serves as the best man at his best friend's wedding. However, what Rachel soon discovers is that the Youngs are not your normal Singaporean family. No, in fact, they seem to be the wealthiest family on the entire island, known and envied by pretty much every other resident. Uh, This news is both surprising and troubling for Rachel, who suddenly feels pressure to live up to the prestige of Nick's family and prove to Nick's mother, played by Michelle Yeoh, that she is worthy of her son's affection. Joining Wu, Golding, and Yo in the cast are a host of other recognizable Asian actors, including Gemma Chan, Ken, Ken Jeong, and Aquafina, who plays an old friend of Rachel's that happens to live on the same island as Nick's family. Now, Scott, this movie is, is generating a lot of buzz, not just for its diverse cast and setting, but also for the strength of its story and characters. Were you swept away by its charms like so many others have been? You know, I, I to answer your question, I, I think... Yes, I, and it's not buried the lead at all. I, I was I wasn't sure what to expect going into this movie. I, I remember seeing trailers for this back in the spring, and I was like, audibly laughed out loud. I think the first time I saw it, and I was like, wow, like this is. I mean, it's an it it, it was advertised as an eye candy movie that you know romance, you know rom com. I I don't know if I'd even call this movie necessarily a rom com, but a romance movie that it really is trying to you know appeal to the, I guess, more, uh, an audience that's looking for a more diverse modern film, which I, I appreciate and respect, and I think that we need more of this, and, you know, and I don't think that's a negative, what it was trying to do, but I, I wasn't necessarily expecting a high-quality movie, I wasn't expecting a movie where I'm going to walk out of it and be like, oh, that was not only fun, but, but really good, and I think that ultimately, I walked out of this movie, you know, a week ago when I saw it, and I walked out thinking, wow, that was really fun, and wow, that movie was pretty good. So I was swept away by you know what it was able to in you know create with its with its source material. Now, I understand that you know the the movie, which was I think I think the screenplay was written by the author of the book. Is that is that correct or no? no. Uh, I I'm not sure if that's correct. Yeah. I, I want to say that maybe John M. Chu also wrote the script. Yeah. Okay. No. So, so Ke- like you said, Kevin Kwan wrote the book, and I'm I'm pretty sure he was a he was at least I'd imagine he was involved with this making this movie. But the screenplay was written by Peter Chiarelli and Adele Lim, so not the same. Okay, yeah. I back that. But you know, you, you take the the source material of, of Kevin Kwan, which I, I admittedly have not read. But uh, my understanding is that the screenplay and the direction of this movie is at least somewhat different from the book. And the way that one of my friends was described to me, who also saw the movie, who read the book was, you know, most of these changes were, were quite positive. Some of the things that, you know, she didn't necessarily like about the book or she felt like the book didn't 
do a good job closing the loop on the movie did a better job so i always appreciate when you know it's very i mean i'll I'd go on a limb here and say that it's rare that a movie adaptation of a book is better than the book itself but it sounds like some of some of the things that that might have been lacking in the book were made up for in the movie and i think part of that is actually some of you know the the polishing the finishing of these character arcs and also of course you know when you when you put character actors and actresses on the screen it allows you to get more of a picture uh on these characters more more of life in these characters than than you can on the page in in some instances and and i think there are instances that we will talk about when we talk more about the cast that you know these people these actors and actresses really really uh did their did their part did their work did a great job bringing these characters to life on the screen and to use your words what i believe when you initially asked me were really captivating yeah, I mean, you know, like you, I also have not read the book, so I can't exactly comment on that aspect of it, but also like you, I was skeptical when I first saw trailers for this movie. It wasn't really on my radar for a long time. I mean, you know, I, I saw the trailers and I thought that this, you know, looks like a, a you know, a, a great bit of diverse casting. Um you know, it's great to see a cast of all Asian actors because, you know, we don't see that. Yeah, I was going to say, we haven't mentioned that, but the, the cast is, at least the, I mean, yeah. I can only think of a few characters in this movie that wouldn't fit the, I mean, there was like the opening scene with a couple of the, like, white receptionists or whatever, right. but otherwise, all the, this, all the major characters and even a lot of the, you know, even minor supporting characters are entirely casted with Asian, Asian American actors and actresses. Right, right. So seeing you know seeing the trailers, I thought, well, this movie definitely has its heart in the right place. But you know, because romantic comedies are because good romantic comedies are kind of few and far between nowadays, I kind of wondered what the quality of this movie was going to be like. Um, but after seeing the reviews, after hearing all the buzz, I you know I decided I had to see this movie, and uh, I'm very glad that I did because. Not only is it, like I was saying, it's great for uh, Asian culture, for, you know, diversity in casting, um, and just in general, the things that it does in terms of normalizing this sort of um, film with Asian actors in a way that we haven't seen before, and we'll talk a little bit more later about, you know, just sort of the the macro-level importance of this movie. but not just in those aspects, but also in the quality of the film. I think the acting is strong across the board, very strong. In fact, one of, one of the strongest things about the movie, I think the movie, you know, obviously looks great. I mean, it's like it, I've seen several reviews describe it as real estate porn in some of the scenes, and I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, because we just have these huge sprawling mansions and coastlines, and yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a gorgeous movie that really highlights the beauty of, um, you know, Asia in, in ways that we haven't seen um, maybe uh, in, a, in a long time. Um, well, so at I least think, at least Singapore. Yes, Singapore. That's true. I mean, we don't really see much of much of anything except for Singapore. But um, but yeah, but so all of that is great. Um, and, you know, and I, and I think that the story for the most part is very good, and the writing. Uh, I mean, I I laughed a lot during this movie. I mean, particularly Aquafina's character. I think mm-hmm. it, you know, obviously, is perhaps the most. A straightforward comic relief in this movie um, but I thought that uh, most of her jokes were totally landing for me I mean I actually texted you in the first 40 minutes of this movie maybe and said I'm absolutely loving this movie like Aquafina's hilarious like 
wow, like this is great. Yeah, and it, I it, don't, it was I don't know. funny that you texted me because we both separately had, mm-hmm. although we weren't planning on originally doing the review for this movie, at least right. not in a, in you know the the title role of the of, of the podcast. We were both saw it on the same night. You texted me like half an hour before I was seeing it that you were watching. It was it was pretty funny. Yeah, um, but you know I don't think that necessarily it maintains that high. Uh, that it was on in the first 40 minutes when it's just, you know, super charming and, uh, you know, really loved, uh, you know, meeting all the characters, seeing these locations for the first time, just getting ingrained in this world, you know, you're kind of swept away by the charm of it. I think maybe in the middle third of the movie, mm-hmm. um, when the story picks up a little bit, it, um, you know, it, it, I don't want to say it goes off the rails because I don't, I mean, I think it, it remains within the rails for the, most of the movie, but... Uh, maybe it, it loses a little bit of um, what made it compelling in the first part, and mm-hmm. um, maybe gets a little—I mean—a little over dramatic, or, or you know, a little soapy in some parts. Um, but then, you know, what I was really glad to see is that in the final third of the movie, it won me back over again. I was, I was totally won over again. There are a couple of really, really good scenes in the last uh, third of this movie that we'll talk about, and I think that you know, in the way that the first third you know, really, like, got me, uh, you know, loving these characters, um, the third, the, the last third really, uh, is the emotional payoff, and, uh, you know, the fact that you care about these characters is really rewarded by what happens in the ending of, uh, of this movie, and, and it makes it a very satisfying ending, um, which, unfortunately, I think is, it's, it's hard to find a movie with a satisfying ending. It's, it's John Grisham syndrome where you have, you know, a great, a great story all the way through, uh, but then the ending kind of lets you down in and, and a lot of movies, even, you know, some really, really good movies, um, romantic comedy or not. Uh, so it, it's, I'm always, uh, I always appreciate when a movie can really follow through with its ending and leave me feeling satisfied and that, you know, what I watched for the first two-thirds of the movie was really rewarded in the last third um so i definitely appreciated that yeah absolutely i think that to you know to dive a little bit deeper kind of like i think you just did i i mostly feel the same way i think that i maybe felt a little bit less invested in some of the characters i i do still think at you know the global level going you know backing up i I do still think that i was more captivated i was overall captivated by the story and the characters and and you know certainly more than i expected to be but there are certain character arcs that I was more interested in others. And then to your point about kind of slowing down in the middle third, you know, I, I think that that was especially true for, and I, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't actually know where we're going next with this, but this might be a nice transition for us. I, I was kind of let down by the way that Rachel Chu's character, you know, the, the played by Constance Wu, the, the lead actress, the, the lead role in this movie kind of developed over the course of the movie. Like you, you, you learn about her in the opening part. She's this, NYU economics professor, incredibly smart, you know, you know, essentially this person who, you know, at least by American society standards, would be very well respected in terms of who she is, who she's developed to be, you know, she's worked her way up, she's really smart, uh, doing things that she's passionate about. And I really felt like somewhere in the middle, we lost that trail, that, that kind of character development, where she became this really you know, stereotypical rom-com female lead actress. And I was a little bit disappointed by that. I do think that, that to your point about the final third picking back up, that that was rekindled uh, in one scene in particular that I'm sure we will talk about in a little bit. Um, 
but but I was disappointed kind of from basically the bachelorette party towards you know almost to the end that I really felt like I can't say we lost the plot because that is unfortunately the wrong metaphor but the the character kind of I, I lost what I liked and what I felt found really attractive about the character in, in terms of a, a story development character development uh, kind of way yeah, I don't know if it was necessarily the character that I felt let down by or just the movie in general at this part of the movie. Um, but, I, I mean, I agree that I think the stretch you're talking about in the movie probably is the weakest in the movie. And, and you know, kind of what I was talking about earlier, if you were getting a little soapy, I mean, these things like where her... What is it that they put the, they put in her bed after the bachelorette party? Didn't they gut a, um, gut a fish? And, yeah, and, yeah. yeah, and it was like animal entrails of some sort. I don't know. It, it, it felt really... Um, you know, although the movie does take on some, like, uh, you know, a serious tone and, and you know, has has things to say, I, I feel like it was really, like, atonal with the rest of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. To have, like, almost like, you know, you're in a thriller or something, the way that all of a sudden her, her bed, is, she comes back and finds her bed decorated with these fish guts and, um, you know... Uh, there's a there's a, like a bloody message or something written up basically telling her to like go home and that she's not good enough or something and I, and I think that that is a common theme in the movie you know it, like I talked about even in the plot description that Rachel is trying to really her arc in this movie is her trying to live up to the high standards that Nick's family set and then eventually realizing that she doesn't need to live up in the end. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think and, to, to, on the, on this point, this is something that, that I talked a lot about with the same friend who, yeah. who had read the book. And, and one one thing that is really, I you know, I wouldn't say it's groundbreaking, but I think it is for this genre or for film maybe in general. It's not a concept that I think in necessarily books is groundbreaking, but it really explores well, like, cultural differences, right? So, like, the difference between even, you know, being a, a, like a third generation immigrant where you're raised by pretty like mostly Americanized, um, you know, Asian American families. And then, you know, having to interact with like thinking, thinking that you have Asian like, or feeling like legitimately so that you have Asian heritage, uh, that, you know, you're not like, though, though you may like quote unquote pass as being white in terms of like cultural traditions, uh, you, you still are visibly, uh, a- Asian American or identified as so. You know, and then you interact with a family that you know really it has, has that closer kind of touch with Asian with with Asian culture and something that like okay maybe you you had a little bit of of cultural knowledge and understanding but these people have a whole different level and and I think you see those that cultural the, or I should say the friction created when you when you have like this Americanized culture and then like the quote unquote like real authentic Asian culture and I think this movie really explores. Well, one, I think it really, it really, at least the, I think the, probably the book does this more than the movie does, but, but this story really shows you the friction between those cultures and, and how in some ways there's a, there's a gray area between, you know, certain cultures and when cultures get blended, um, you can think or that you have a certain understanding, but when you actually face it, you realize there are real differences there. And I think that this movie, to your point about, you know, Rachel having to live up to the high, the high standards, you know, those, those standards are, you know, incredibly difficult for anyone to live up to. And, you know, you can definitely argue or it's not possible to live up to them, at least not the ones that Eleanor, which is Nick's mom, played by Michelle Yeoh, uh, has set for Rachel or, or whoever it is that's going to eventually become, you know, Nick's wife, fiance, whatever. And I think that a lot of that, it, 
a lot of that high standard is not able to be met because the standard itself is for Nick to marry this authentically Asian woman mm-hmm. and, and not some Americanized version. Right, and I think, I mean, I absolutely agree with what you're saying because I think, you know, when we talk about the fact that this movie is diverse and all of that, you know, we tend to think, oh, it's diverse in the sense that it has Asian actors instead of white actors, which is true, yep. obviously. But it's also diverse in the sense that we explore the different layers of Asian culture like you're talking about instead of just roping everyone into the same category, which obviously, you know, yes. is, is would be even more harmful than just casting white actors instead, um, sure. arguably. Yeah. Um, but I also think that what it does and what you're talking about is it subverts sort of Asian stereotypes because, you know, we think we always think about Asian parents and stuff in movies as being these people who have really high standards. Like that's the, that's the stereotype of Asian characters um, mm-hmm. and Asian, especially Asian parents um, just, you know, in popular culture, in society, whatever. But I think that this movie really subverts that by, you know, ultimately letting us walk away with this message of, you know, the, it's not about, like I was saying earlier, uh, she doesn't have to live up to these standards. It's about who you are and being true to who you are um, and finding someone who will appreciate you for who you are and not for what you bring to the family. Um, and I think that the scene that you're talking, you're alluding to earlier, which is one of the best scenes in the movie and probably the strongest in terms of Constance Wu's performance is that scene at the Mahjong table, mm-hmm. um, which I think is, is just a really powerful scene. And I think that that's where Constance Wu's performance, where Constance Wu really brings it home with her performance, I think, in that scene where, um, you know, she, she really, she goes toe-to-toe with, um, with, uh, Michelle Yeoh, with Michelle Yeoh's Eleanor. character, the mother, and really just sort of exposes the, like, fallacy, and it exposes everything that is wrong about the way that Michelle Yeoh is thinking about her relationship and, and just... Uh, you know, the, the concept of who her son's wife is going to be in general um, and really exposes it in a powerful way. And I think Constance Wu has a really strong performance in that scene and throughout the movie, even though, like we were talking about, sometimes the movie maybe lets her down a little bit. But I also think that one of the strongest performances in this movie comes from Henry Golding, who plays um, Nick, um, the you know the other half of this romance i was really impressed with his performance um being that he's not an actor he you know like i said in the in the intro he's he's the host of the travel show on bbc and he's you know he's known for being a talk show host uh but he's a, i mean he's a, you would never know it from watching this movie because he's an absolute natural um and very charming and i think he takes on this character that had a had a um possibility to be very pretentious and very um you know, stuck up in a way that we, you know, maybe we wouldn't like him that much. Um, because, you know, I, I feel like it's hard to pull off this character that's like, you know, he comes from this rich background, but he's like, oh no, but I don't, I don't care about that. You know, I, I, I care about you. Like, I love you. Like, you know, it can, it can come off as really like disingenuous and false sounding um, with maybe a lesser performance. But I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think that's the case at all with Henry Golding. I think that this performance won me over from the beginning, um, and I really bought into his character throughout the entire movie. I'm not sure how you felt about it, but that was my reaction. No, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that I wasn't, I mean, like I said, I wasn't really expecting strong performances from any particular actor or actress in this movie going into it, and I was, you know, I was especially surprised by by Henry Golding's 
performance. I, I thought that, I, I mean, I had never heard of him before. I, I haven't ever watched the travel show, which is, I think it's a BBC show anyway, right? So it's probably not, I don't, I don't know how well it's shown in the U.S., um, but I haven't seen it regardless of whether it is or not. But I was I was very satisfied with it. I thought that he it, he portrays this aura of being very down to earth, and you don't necessarily. I mean, you it, you get this immediately in terms of when you meet this character as someone who is like very grounded, very down to earth, as I've already said. But it, this becomes particularly clear when you juxtapose him with the rest of his almost outlandish family. Yeah. You have Eleanor. You have his brothers and sister. And, you know, you can't say that all of them are as well-adjusted as Nick Young is. And I think Henry Golding does a really good job, not only with, you know, his chemistry with uh, Constance Wu, but also with the way he reacts and, and authentically plays off of the, uh, you know, his family members and the, and the actors and actresses playing his family members. You know, I, I, he's not going to be nominated for any, you know, best performance of the year category but i think it's a very respectable performance in a, in a movie that you know he he is on par with the movie and that you know he also exceeded my expectations yeah and you know you talk about his family members as well and the contrast between him and his family members and i think that's you know a good segue to talk about also michelle yo who i also think is probably the other strongest performance in this movie um from a dramatic standpoint and yep. you know she, I, I, I think it's really great that she is in this movie because uh, she is a, obviously a more well-known actor than either Henry Golding or Constance Wu will be. I mean, she's been uh, doing great work. Uh, I mean, yeah, I can remember all you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, obviously um, one of her one of her top credits um, from twenty. It's probably been twenty years now since that movie came out. Um, but it's great to see her in a more high-profile movie where people will recognize, you know, just what a talented actress she is. And again, I think that she adds depth to a potentially stereotypical character of the Asian parent with really high standards. I think there's a lot more to it than that in terms of, you know, her own personal background, um, like the character's own personal background and how she's gotten to where she is um, in society. And, um, you know, you know, I, we, we really understand why she feels uh, the way that, she, you know, where, where her motivation comes from to feel the way that she does about her family in a way that it, that really goes deeper than sort of this, maybe the superficial, like, 10 word description of this character. Um, and I think that all of that is due to the strength of Michelle Yeoh's performance. Yeah, I, I agree that. This performance in particular, if I had to pick one in my mind, is the one that that stands out. And and you're right, because it's so easy to... I I, I hesitate to say phone it in, but you could watch like 10 rom-com movies with like difficult parents as a part of it. And you could play, you know, whatever the the average of that is and not have to work very hard to put in a a meaningful, uh, you know, if not unique performance. And I think that... I really appreciated the nuance and the depth that Michelle Yeoh has like put into this character because you know not only is she someone who, in my at least when I was watching the film, kind of drew my eye. You know, even amongst all the other characters who who you know even if it's you know be Aquafina or or Constance Wu or Henry Golding, like she was the one who had my attention when she was on the screen, and I think that speaks volumes because I can't think of too many other. 
you know, ro- romance, romantic comedy movies that I've seen where it's the parent who I'm captivated by when, you know, they're on screen with the other primary actors and actresses in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think that the scenes where she does go toe-to-toe with Constance Wu kind of are, are definitely some of the strongest in the movie. Um, absolutely. Thanks to her, her, for, yeah, no, her I was going yeah, to say, you know, we've already talked about the Mahjong scene. You know, at least we touched on it briefly, and maybe we'll dive into more detail in it in a few minutes. And, and then also, there's a, a scene with kind of earlier on in the movie, or maybe in the middle third, where you know she's on the stairwell, just her right. and Constance Wu, and and you can and she's telling the story about how she was someone who you know struggled with being enough for her husband, who I don't actually ever think you see him in the movie, but uh, Philip, who's like the the patriarch of the family or whatnot. And then you have, of course. And the reason that she wasn't enough for Philip was because the matriarch, yeah, yeah, you know, the matriarch of the family played by I think is it Lisa Liu, Lisa Uh, Liu, yeah, yeah, uh, she uh, basically adjudged that um, Eleanor, played by Michelle Yeoh, uh, wasn't of the right background for Philip uh, when when she was marrying. So kind of trying to, on some level, tell Constance Wu that she relates to her situation, but you know, regardless. She's not good enough, and, and I thought she that was this way, yeah. exactly. It was a really, it was really mesmerizing you know, monologue that she kind of gives with with Constance Wu, Constance Wu, you know, standing there and, and having to receive the full force of of the ultimate punch of at the end of the story. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that on the flip side, from maybe the more dramatic arc of the movie, we have someone I've already talked about, but. Uh, for the second time this year, I think, who is uh, very much a scene stealer in this movie, and that's mm-hmm. Aquafina, who plays, uh, I think, is it Pai Ling, the name of her character? Yeah, go, um, go, go Pai Ling, yeah, I think. Yeah, um, who is like an old friend of Rachel's, who mm-hmm. also happens to live in Singapore. Um, who is rich, you know, but not quite crazy rich. <laughs> right, right. I, I, I honestly, I, I think that she makes the most of her scenes in this movie, but I do wish that there had been more of her character. Uh-huh. Um, because... You know, I, I was surprised at how much I laughed um, at a lot of her lines. Um, I think, you know, it is a, a genuinely funny character, and I think that Aquafina is quickly becoming a, a star in, in terms of uh, comedic acting between this movie and between Ocean's 8, which we saw her in earlier this year. Um, also a movie where she had maybe a small part, but I think definitely made the most of it. Um, so she's another standout of the supporting cast for me. You know, you also have Gemma Chan, who um, maybe is, is a semi-well-known name from her work um, on, on TV and in um, some other movies. Um, I think that maybe her the storyline that she gets, um, that, that, that we, we go on with her character, who is a, uh, who is a cousin of, of Nick's, I believe. Um, she's like a real like fashionista type cousin, also very rich. But it's it's kind of like it, it is one of the weaker parts of the movie. But also, I understand why they were trying, what they were trying to do with it. Because honestly, we're kind of seeing the flip side of Nick and Rachel's relationship in a way. We're seeing in, in this instance where the female is the one who comes from the the um, really rich background, and the male, um, her husband, who I don't even remember what his name is, but um, uh, he, Charlie, I think is his name. Charlie, yeah, he come, doesn't come from that kind of background. And or is it Michael? Actually, I'm not sure now. Never mind, doesn't matter. Any, anyway, on. yeah. yeah. Well, we we kind of see, like, it's almost like a cautionary tale of this is how, you know, these, type, these types of relationships can possibly go wrong. Um, 
but I, I think perhaps they didn't flesh it out as much as I would have liked to see. Although, I, you know, like I said, I do understand what their intentions were with this. Yeah, I, to kind of touch first on, well, I'll start with I'll start with the one that we we're just talking about. Yeah, to start with, I think her character name's Astrid, uh, mm-hmm. Jim Chan's character. I I really agree with you that you know it's this this arc was underwhelming to me, and I actually I know we disagree on this point, but I actually think Jim Chan didn't actually do that great of a job in this movie personally um it it could just be that the the underwhelming nature of the arc but i didn't think her character i didn't think she added any additional life into a character that you know maybe could have used a little bit more help from the script writers but regardless i didn't i was underwhelmed by this but i I will say that i did appreciate the the end of her arc you know i i liked the i i did want to like this arc I, i i wanted to like the the visualization of exactly what you've described kind of the opposite of Nick and Rachel's relationship, you know, wh- I, whether it's Charlie or Michael, who, whatever the character's name is, um, I think that I was intrigued at the initial start of this. So this person who, you know, she feels like she has to hide her expensive purchases from because he's from a poorer background and doesn't want to, you know, make him feel awkward or uncomfortable with uh, all the money that she spends and, it, I mean, frankly, that she's able to spend, uh, and you know, all of her businesses. She has like what thirteen or fourteen uh, real estate developments that she personally manages while he's like trying to start his own company and i won't spoil it um but i i was really satisfied by the end of of the arc and particularly the the line that Jimma chan delivers uh that was a very satisfying ending. and I, I i'm not sure whether you feel the same way i think that maybe we went back and forth on this off air uh after we saw the movie but i the end was more satisfying than maybe the the overall arc was for me yeah, I think so. I think that's probably true. I mean, I'm assuming you're talking about the limo scene. No, um, no, no. no. I'm, talk, I'm talking. No, no, no. I'm talking about the very end uh, in the apartment. Oh, like, okay. Literally okay, the last okay. couple minutes of the movie. When yeah, they yeah, it yeah. Up. I, I was very underwhelmed by the limo scene. I didn't care. Yeah, about okay. That scene. Yeah, I, I, I was as well. Yeah. Um, I think. Yeah, I think it is. Maybe the ending is a little strong, but I still a little stronger but I still think they probably could have done more with it and it just seems like sometimes when they went to that subplot it was a little jarring a a, a bit of a jarring transition from the rest of the movie yeah I I think that's definitely fair I think that's definitely fair I I don't know if you want to add anything else but I can also comment on Aquafina sure yeah I think that you know she like you said is a scene stealer she you know if you weren't quite sure yet how you were feeling about the movie when you get to the part where Aquafina shows up about, about half an hour in I'd say uh, 25 to 30 minutes into the movie. Um, cer- certainly, she gets you off the fence because she is absolutely hilarious. You know, she has other... The, the entire dynamic between her and her family and then when you... Yeah, that, whole, you, that whole first scene where they're having dinner together yeah. is great and you have Ken Jong yeah, playing Ken the dad J- who yep. is hilarious and you have the, you know, the son who like... It's just like this really quiet kid, and Kim Jong's like trying to like set him up with Rachel during the whole movie, and mm-hmm. uh, it's yeah, yeah, absolutely the dynamic, not just between Aquafina but between everyone, uh, in her family is makes for um, some great comedy in those scenes. Yeah, the, the brother slash son there being a very at times uncomfortable character, uh, yeah. if, if not always funny, and particularly one scene towards the end of the movie um, when he's like taking photos of of yeah. people which is just like very very weird um but yeah no i think aquafina kills it i think i'm i agree with you that the only way she could have uh been improved was if she was in more of the scenes yeah. uh, there was nothing i don't think any there's any more she could have done with what, with what she was given uh but on a similar note there was other one comedic relief character that i wanted to mention uh also because i've been watching silicon valley recently so this character has a minor role in that 
and I, I, I really love that character in that. But that's uh, Jimmy O. Yang's Bernard Tai, who plays the... Mm-hmm. I, I, do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, the uh, really crazy... Like, yeah, the former classmate of Nick. Groomsman, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Groomsman. And uh, very recognizable character. If you've, if you've watched Silicon Valley... Um, very recognizable, and you know, to have his opening line of the movie be like, "This is for you, asshole." When he like shows up at the at the bachelor's party was hilarious, and he shoots. Yeah, out. because he and Nick have had like a beast in the past yeah, or yeah, something, yeah. isn't that what it is? Yeah. I think I think that's right. Yeah, I think it's Nick and Colin, uh, which was the other person. Colin is the best friend. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Colin, Colin's the person getting married. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and you know, then he, you know, he, they're on the be- they're at the bachelor party. And he shoots, a, you know, a rock. He's shooting a rocket launcher into the ocean. Um, just a really great character, and then um, those were the two. Like between him and Aquafina, I just really I thought they were excellent comic relief characters. And sometimes, I mean, you're always going to have a comic relief character in this kind of film. Uh, but to have two of them of such high quality is something I really appreciated because I think a lot of a lot of these types of movies fall short and and become really kind of forced in their comedy. And this one felt it felt natural the whole time. Absolutely. Um, and so I think before maybe we go into the wrap up, let's briefly talk about. You know, and we, and we have talked about this a little bit along the way, but uh, uh, in terms of the movie, uh, how important this movie is for diversity and for Asian representation on screen. And I think that for me, you know, maybe one point which I haven't really talked about, if you look at this movie from, you know, from 4,000 feet or, or whatever, um, I think that what makes this movie special and what makes this movie unique and, you know, encouraging for the future of, of representation is that this isn't. The characters aren't stereotypes. It's also not like a historical drama or something where you would expect to see Asian characters. It's just a normal movie, uh, and I, you know, obviously, we Asian culture plays a huge part in it. And you know, the fact that these characters are Asian is obviously hugely important to the plot. But it's a, it's just a normal rom com in you know in the way that we get a half you know two dozen of these movies every year. Um, and it just happens to have Asian actors in it. And I think that's really important because it, it normalizes um, seeing Asian actors uh, in, you know, your average movie, um, which I think is ultimately the goal. But I also think it's important that we can't say, oh, well, it's great. We had, you know, Crazy Rich Asians. It was great for Asian representation. And that be the end of it. Like, this needs to be the start of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that I held off talking about earlier, uh, or a comparison that I want to make that uh, I th- almost made earlier, but thought I'd save it for this kind of this kind of segment of the discussion, was that I think this movie. I mean, I think twenty eighteen has been a really strong year for like proving that movies can do it without having white casts. Right. And I think Black Panther led that charge. I mean, it's second, you know, globally at the box office this year. It's first. It you know it stayed higher in the U.S. than Avengers Infinity War. So showing that the most... And, like, nothing's going to beat it this year. Like, showing that, you know, you can have a, you can have a superhero movie with an almost entirely black cast, with, the, like, two exceptions being, you know, Andy Serkis and Martin Lawrence. Um, you know, th- those are the... Mar- two- Martin, Martin Freeman. Oh, yeah, sorry, Martin Freeman, not Martin Lawrence. Jesus. Um, <laughs> Martin Lawrence would have been great in Black Panther. <laughs> I would have loved that. Anyway, yeah, you know, showing you know with two small exceptions of you know minor roles in the film that an entirely black cast can be the highest-grossing film 
you know, the, of, of an entire year, you know, proving that you do not need wide actors in a movie to be successful. And I think that this movie is showing, just like Black Panther, that you do not need wide actors and actresses to have a commercially successful movie. You, know, you talked about yes. it was number one at the box office in its opening weekend last weekend, $35 million. It's gonna. It's projected to be number one by a lot this weekend. Like I think I think it's projected for about twenty five million for this weekend. And the next closest thing that, if I'm remembering correctly, when I looked it up, was the Meg, and it was like half as yeah. much money at the box office this weekend. Yeah. And you know, we'll see if that if it for you know the third weekend in a row next weekend. You know, I would, I might be willing to bet that it's going to be a highest grossing next weekend as well. Just looking at what's coming out, and that is, I mean, it's not going to gross the Black Panther numbers in the U.S., which I think was around. Uh, I think it ended up around, you know, in the 600 to 700 million range. Like, obviously, it's not going to get anywhere near that. But, you know, next weekend, it might surpass 100 million. And, you know, for a three, for just for U.S. alone, right? Um, I think that's, actually, I mean, that may not be U.S. alone. I'm not sure. I'll take that back. But the point is, is that this movie is commercially successful. It literally has zero white actors in it in, you know, major or minor roles. And to show that it can be, you know, it can make 70, 80 million dollars in two weekends is something that, you know, if you went to and go, you know, found like the top, you know, mo- movie consultants out there, you know, they tell you, you know, you need white action actresses to be as successful as you can be in the film space. And, you know, this year is proving them wrong. And that's something that the Hollywood industry needs, you know, the people that I think this is a Warner Brothers movie. Like, this is something that, like, Warner Brothers needs to see. This is something that paramount needs to see this is something that you know insert like disney needs to see and it's really really empowering to see not just one movie but two movies this year be so commercially successful and have so few white actors and actresses and that's something that i like you said i hope it's the start you know not the whole story yeah and I think it's also worth pointing out, you know, you say it's probably going to be number one at the box office again next weekend, and I think that that's probably, that is probably true, but if it perhaps were to lose, the one, at the one movie maybe next weekend, which could be challenging it, is the movie Searching, which stars an Asian actor, John Cho. Yep. Um, so, you know, it, it is just the beginning, and um, I think that, you know, that alone demonstrates it, um, that we have another movie that you know, kind of like I was alluding to, is also just kind of a normal movie. I mean, it, it's it's a thriller, like it's just it's a conventional thriller um, that stars an Asian actor, and I feel like it's probably going to do well. I mean, I've seen a lot of trailers for it in playing before big movies, and um, you know, the reaction in the theater always seems to be really good. Um, so, you know, and we'll talk about that movie in more detail in our next episode. But mm-hmm. I think you know. It's encouraging to see that as well. Yeah, j- j- um, just a quick update. So it is, yeah. So it is grossed in its first two weekends seventy-seven million dollars in the, just domestically. So um, I think that just shows that you know you can do it. You can do it, and you don't need white actors. So absolutely. Um, okay, so wrapping up for this movie, um, what was your favorite scene or moment in Crazy Rich Asians? Yeah, so I know I know that you're going to say um, the the domino scene, right? Like you're, you're well, going. Well, I was going to say a different scene because we already talked about that. Guy, okay, yeah. But. So we can both agree that the that the sorry the mahjong scene, not the domino scene, um, <laughs> is the best movie. Or sorry, is the best scene in this movie, right? Like, yeah, and I wrote, on that? I wrote in my letterbox review that even though I had no, I don't know a thing about the game of mahjong. At the end of this scene, when she like lays her tiles down, I was like, boom. Like, I just yelled it out because it was, like, it, it was just such a great moment. Yeah, 
Um, but in, in an effort to, to be uh, to be different, I will say that I did I also avoid an Aquafina scene because I assume that you're going to also talk about an Aquafina scene. But it doesn't matter at this point. I, I've chosen to go with, kind of like I mentioned, I already alluded to this scene already, but there's a final scene between Astrid and her husband uh, and a particular line that really resonated with me at the core. I think it was something like, you know, I can't, you know, I've spent I've spent our marriage trying to like, you know, bu- build you up, but I can't. I, but I can't make you what you aren't. I can't make you a man. Um, and I was like, oh, slay. <laughs> um, yeah, really. It was it was, a, it was a really strong line, and and I think that you know, coming from someone, who, somebody who, I I feel like I see, all the time. Uh, you know what? You know whether it be you know, in the in the workplace or hearing stories from the people that I talk to in the workplace, like having you know men essentially try to you know do- dominate that space and and assert assert their dominance and try to like build themselves up and and you know be you know you know the the stereotypical like white you know and not necessarily white but like you know the masculinity you know build up their masculinity and, and to see uh an example of that just being called out for for their like fragile masculinity i really appreciate in this movie to go along with the diversity um that this movie brings yeah, so I actually want to highlight a scene that we haven't talked about so far, uh, mainly for you know the technical aspects of the scene. But the wedding scene that we eventually get um, towards oh, the yeah. end of this movie is a gorgeous scene, mm-hmm. um, even though you know the wedding is not between two of the major characters in the movie. Um, yep. I think that the way the scene is shot, the way that it uses music really well, um, it you know a lot of people have have said that this is you know, a standout scene for the movie, and, and I agree, I think, you know, from a technical aspect, it's it's pretty stunning. Um, so, yeah, so let's put a score on it. Um, what would you give Crazy Rich Asians out of 10? You know, it's not a perfect movie. Um, I, I wouldn't ever argue that it is, but it's one that I really, really enjoyed. Uh, to echo both of our comments from the beginning of the review, it surpassed my expectations. I walked out not only enjoying it, but thinking that it was pretty good. And so I think uh, 7.7 should do it for me. Yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to be a little bit higher just because I think that this movie is on the same level as another really, really good romantic comedy, which we talked about earlier this year, mm-hmm. uh, and that set it up starring Glenn Powell and Zoe Deutsch. Um, I think that this movie is on that same level, so I'm going to give it the same score which I gave to set it up, which is 8.4. Yep, I remember I gave that movie a much lower score. I thought I thought this one was on exactly what you're describing on the level with that. Uh, so this movie actually comes in. I think I gave a, set it up a six point eight. So uh, this, okay. come, this one comes in as a you know almost a whole point higher than set it up. But very good movie. Would would definitely recommend, uh, especially in this what what might be called like the late summer lull of movies. Um, yes, uh, this is a perfect movie to to go out and see. And it's going to be in theaters for a while too. It sounds like so you get you got a. Uh... You have plenty of opportunities, I would say. Yeah, it, it's um, all, I think it's only dropped six percent at the box office this weekend, which is crazy. So yeah, that's awesome. Um, awesome. But yeah, so that should just about wrap up our discussion of Crazy Rich Asians. We are going to take a short break now. When we come back, we will be reviewing another movie that looks at race in a unique and contemporary way: Spike Lee's Black Klansman. Be right back. So 
episode of Some Like It, Scott. Up next on the docket is the 28th joint from acclaimed director Spike Lee. It's called Black Klansman and it's based on the true story of Ron Stallworth, a black police officer in Colorado who successfully infiltrated the Ku Klux Klan in the 1970s. In Lee's film, Stallworth is played by John David Washington as a man feeling conflicted by the changing political atmosphere he finds himself in. While he empathizes with the growing Black Panther Black Panther and Black Power movement, he also feels drawn to his profession as a police officer, even as the police are labeled more and more vigorously as the enemy. This conflict is what inspires him to try and infiltrate the KKK with the help of a white officer named Flip Zimmerman. Played by Adam Driver, Flip is also a target of the KKK, but because of his faith, Judaism, rather than his race. And together, the two men embark on a dangerous operation that eventually leads them to the Grand Wizard of the KKK himself, David Duke, played in the film by Topher Grace. Now, Scott, as you might expect, this movie has not been without its controversy, but it's also being hailed as one of Spike Lee's best. Were you equally captivated by its provocative story and subject matter? Yeah, you know, as someone who I have to admit is not super familiar with Spike Lee films, I have not seen that many of his movies it's hard to compare it to his other work and, or make a claim that it's one of his best films I, I think like maybe the only other movie of his that i've seen is like did, did he make a malcolm x biopic yeah with denzel washington yes. yeah i think i think that and maybe like inside man are uh, the only yeah. two spike lee movies Star, starring john david washington's father oh wow denzel, I mean, both of them yeah i didn't even realize that um oh you didn't realize that he sounds exactly like denzel washington John David Washington? Yeah. Have you you, you got to go back and listen to his voice now that you know that he's Denzel's son. He oh, sounds I, exactly like Denzel. I, did, I, sh- I should have been able to put that together, I guess. But yeah. I did not know that. It's um, kind of crazy, actually. Yeah, but those were the only two Spike Lee movies that I've seen. And, and I uh-huh. w- would have to say that I think the, this movie is better than those two. Um, I really, really liked this movie a lot. Um, I, I'm still pretty fresh. I saw this less than a day ago. So I'm still processing parts of it because I think all parts of it are something that you really have to to sit with and and really have to have to mull over uh in, in parts because i think the the themes it tries to capture are something that are not only temporally relevant but also worth making worth thinking a lot about and, and you know pressing that further along than just where the movie takes you i think you know i i've heard this movie garner a lot of comparisons to you know being the get out of 2018 which i think is pretty much un- is pretty unfair to compare this movie to, I mean, yes, Jordan Peele is a producer on this movie, um, but this movie is a, is a Spike Lee film and, and not a Jordan Peele, Jordan Peele film. And I think that that's evident. Um, and I, I know I texted you about this after the movie was over. But as as much as I enjoyed this movie, you know, the, the themes it's trying to touch on, albeit maybe similar to Get Out and, and and the the nature of race relations in modern day America, uh, even though this movie is set in a, a time that's a little bit different from now um yeah i think 1992 is that or seven sorry 72 is yeah. when this I, movie I, is I, oh, I, it takes place over over a course of um several years i think um oh okay th- that long i, I think that or, or i think that that's what how it went down in real life i think maybe by the time the operation was over i want to say it was like the late 70s but i'm not sure got it okay well the point is like this movie is set 40 plus years ago and uh, sad, you know whether well, I mean I think it's sad, but sadly you know the the themes that it addresses in in this movie the, the themes yeah. the, the questions it asks are just as relevant now as they as they were thirty five forty years ago, and I 
really enjoyed the way this the this film asked those questions, presented them on screen, uh, and, and I, I really loved the performances in this movie across the board. I can't think of a performance that I disliked, but you know, in particular, John David Washington, fantastic. Adam Driver, fantastic. Topher Grace, fantastic. I really liked Ryan Eggolt, who played Walter. Um, I thought Jasper pa- Paquinen, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, um, was also a really strong performance and deeply. Yeah, his, he was unreal. Yeah, no, in a, a deeply unsettling character mm-hmm. to to witness on screen to to see the different scenes that he's in, and then you know, uh, I I know I when we this this character or this sorry this actor had come up in one other movie that we've discussed, Paul Walter Hauser, who plays Ivanhoe. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Played the the bumbling idiot friend from Itania, yeah. um, and was just as much bumbling and just as much an idiot in this movie. And I yeah. and I really thought across the board the performances were really really strong. Maybe even you know the, the characters and the actors and act, and actresses in this movie probably were the strongest part of it. One one thing that I do want to talk about as a, as a slight negative to this film, and the thing that that I think caught up caught me up the most for me is is kind of the inconsistent. Uh, cadence and tone and balance of this movie i thought if you're going to compare it to get out you know whether i think regardless of how much you like get out as a film i know it it did have its own set of controversy last year although i I think that it was probably generally more well received than this movie has been i think that get out is a highly polished movie with a with a balance that i i think it's really hard to capture on screen, I think Jordan Peele. The magic of that movie was how polished, how you know, well cut, how uh, well acted, well directed that movie is. You know, mostly thanks to Jordan Peele. And I think that Spike Lee is a little bit more erratic in this movie. That isn't to say this movie doesn't have some really high highs for me. I just really felt like I was never, I was never quite comfortable with not the content of the movie because I think it's obviously fine to not be comfortable with the content of a movie and this in this movie certainly should make you uncomfortable um but i think i wasn't ever really comfortable with the rhythm that this movie set forth for me and in some ways it was it was a little bit distracting sometimes to how much it would speed up and be really good and really well paced for 20 25 maybe even 30 minutes of the you know two hour and 15 minute runtime and then also just be really oddly kind of detached it would then it would like take me out for 10 or 15 minutes uh, with some, you know, disruption in the story. And I don't know if you felt similarly about this, but that was the, I guess, the major critique that I had for the film. Yeah, so, I mean, as with most movies on our show, it not named Jurassic World, I think that I'm probably even a little bit more positive than you are. Um, I think that this is, without a doubt, one of my favorite movies of the year. Um, oh, sorry, ma- ma- if I haven't made that clear, I think this is one of the best movies I've seen in, 20, in okay. 2018. Sorry, I yeah, should, I should yeah. make that clear. Um, but yes, I, I concur. I, this is in my top five for sure, if not higher than that. Um, I think that it is a great, great film, and I think it is also a very important film. But I don't think I don't want to. I don't want it, the fact that it's an important film to be a crutch to people seeing it because I think a lot of times when you hear that a, a movie is super important, you get this like image that it's really heavy and like really hard to watch. And I mean, especially with a subject matter like this one. I think there are um, scenes that are really hard to watch in this movie. Yes, yes. But I also think this is a compulsively watchable movie. Like, I think that you will not, uh, you're not just going to walk out, like, thoroughly depressed at the end of this movie. It's not The Revenant. Uh, 
Right. Um, I, it, like, it is a very enjoyable movie to watch, even though there are scenes which are very uncomfortable. And I think that's what Spike Lee sort of, um, I think he has made a career out of doing that well, you know, especially in a movie that, while I would not put it probably in my top 20 favorites list, I do think it's probably one of the best movies that I've ever seen, and that is Do the Right Thing, back from 1987, I believe, which is sort of the movie which really put him on the map. Um, It's another movie that, you know, especially in the end of that movie, gets really dark and violent, but it's still an extremely watchable movie with a lot of, um, you know, very lovable characters in it. Um, I think that he, you know, he captures a lot of what makes Do the Right Thing so great, uh, also in Black Klansman. Um, I think that maybe where the movie misses being, you know, a complete bullseye for me is, uh, and I mean, we, we may differ on this, but I think the final minute or two of this movie um, could have been left out probably. And not because it's not making a good point and a point that is absolutely very valid and needs to be made, but I think it just takes it a step too far. Um, and I think that it, it the point has already been made and there's no reason for him to be super explicit about it in the way that he is in the last two minutes, even though it does have a powerful effect. I I mean, I will say, um, I think that maybe some of the subtlety of the rest of the movie and the way that it criticizes our current culture, um, and, and, you know, politics in a, in a clever, more subtle way. I think that some of that is maybe compromised a little bit by, the last couple minutes of this movie um but you know that should not diminish what i think is a a very satisfying movie and i think that while some people have had problems with the tone with the fact that you know there is a lot of comedy in what is a dark story i think that it really works because Mm -hmm. people don't want to be don't want to you know go to a movie and be beaten over the head with the idea that the kkk is really bad the kkk is really racist like we know that like we don't we don't need to be told that in you know by by really harping on you know the the dark violent aspects of the KKK, um, but I think that the movie is unique because what it does is it makes fun of them and it, it just reveals how ridiculous the very premise behind this organization is, um, and, and you know just sort of exposes the the fallacy um, behind the KKK. And it does so by, you know, sort of weaponizing comedy in a way that I really enjoyed. Um, Especially, you know, towards the end, there are some incredibly satisfying scenes. Um, You know, before you get to that that moment, which I was talking about, which I didn't really like, uh, there are two scenes in particular which had people hollering and cheering in in the theater that I was in, um, which, you know, maybe are a little bit wish fulfillment, um, maybe, you know, are not quite as realistic as some of the rest of the movie, but I also think that the movie earns those scenes. Um, you know, you're talking by, about by the scene me. with David Duke, right? I'm talking about the scene with David Duke and also the scene with the racist cop in the bar. Oh um, yeah, yeah, totally. Both of these scenes had people, you know, like I said, were applauding um, and cheering in the theater. Um, so I, I think the movie absolutely earned those scenes. But yeah, like you two, I think the performances are really strong. I think this is just a really, really gripping and important movie, but not at the expense of uh, the watchability of it. Yeah, so I I had a lot of feelings about the ending of the movie and that I had a really like wide range of 
like emotion. So what I thought was the first in what we'll, what we'll call the first ending of the movie, which is like kind of the wrap up of the major plot of the film. Um, to not to not spoil the movie at all, I thought that that left me felt like felt feeling like oddly underwhelmed by the end of it. And I don't know if it was because like the way it was shot with like a lot of slow motion, and or you know I thought the movie the, the sorry the music in that scene was like really over overbearing, but I kind of I was really disappointed not with the ending because the ending was like exactly what I would have wanted if you asked me what ending I would have wanted for that plot arc, but I was like left oddly unsatisfied with like the way it was presented on screen. So that was like one problem that I had with like the first ending. So I, I you know, I'm watching that scene. And I'm like, was that, is that it? Like, is this going to be it? Like that was really dissatisfying for me in a, in, a, in a film that I really enjoyed. And then you get the, what I would call like the second ending of the movie, which is what you've described as kind of the, the wrap up of some more like minor plot lines. So you have the final call that he has with David Duke, oh, which, is which is just amazing. Like the uh, people were dying in the movie theater I that I was watching. Are you sure about that? Uh, <laughs> are you sure? So good. Yeah, um, and then you know, I think I think pretty much any of the scenes where he has like all of the other people in his department like sitting around <laughs> listening to his conversations with David Duke and just like essentially just screwing with him is just I just find them to be so funny. Um, and then the also you get the second part of this is like the cop in the bar. Um, you know, this, this pretty despicable character who, uh, John David Washington has, sorry, that's not his name. No, yeah, that is John David Washington. You know, Ron Stallworth has had multiple, very, very, uh, we'll say displeasing interactions with him, racist interactions with him throughout the course of the, of the film. And, you know, you get the payoff for that. And so, you know, the second ending, I'm like all about it. I'm feeling like this is amazing. This is a fantastic way to end this movie. And then you have the third ending which, you know, you talked about you being fairly dissatisfied with, and, and I'm curious to ask you, before I give my comments on it, is it literally the whole thing that you're unhappy, like you were thought was unnecessary, or is it, like, particular parts of it that were unnecessary? I think it was the whole thing, and, I mean, we'll just go ahead and spoil it just so we can talk about it. I, don't, I mean, I don't, I don't even think it's a spoiler. Like, the movie ends with, like, yeah. real-life footage from the last... News footage of yeah. the Charlottesville... Um, you know, rally and, and even a dedication to Heather Hare, the, yeah. the girl who died. Yeah. Um, I, 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 don't, I just don't think it needed, because the movie, yeah, like, I, like I said, it makes its point throughout the entire movie. I mean, there's, there's even that line where um, I think it's Flip and, and Ron are talking, and, and one of them said, you know, they're talking about how David Duke is, like, trying to make the KKK more... Easy, easier to swallow for, for people or whatever so they can infiltrate Washington or whatever mm-hmm. and um, one of them says like oh well America would never elect someone like David Duke and everyone in the theater you know kind of like nervously chuckled and I was like I think that that was a very clever way it's not to, just any character it's jo- John David Washington is the one who yes. says America like America would never elect David Duke and then the person who I can't remember if it's his, if it's the sergeant or if it's the captain or the chief that says it, they said that's really naive for a black man. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, and and they even even the phrase I think David Duke even says the phrase "Make America Great Again" at one yeah. point during it, this movie. I actually thought this movie was very on the nose. I thought that there was like nothing. There was nothing too subtle about okay. the comparisons it was making. Well, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree that maybe it's like saying "Make America Great Again" is a little on the nose, but I think that having that footage at the end is even more on the nose and even more unnecessary just because it has made its point uh, and like I don't think I, I was not under the impression like oh this movie was you know really great but it 
was about a, a, a time in the past. Like, obviously, we're all past that now. I don't think anyone can watch the movie up until that last three minutes and actually think that. Like, I think that, that the cultural relevance of it is very obvious throughout the entire movie, mm-hmm. sometimes in a more on-the-nose way, sometimes in a, in a more subtle, clever way. Yep. Um, but I think that that, that, entire, that entire sequence at the end just took it too far, in my opinion. Yeah, I can I can definitely see an argument as to why it's unnecessary, and I definitely hear what you're saying about it's not it's not like the movie had been subtle before this about making yeah. allusions to modern. I mean, it times. had in some places, but in other places, yeah, maybe not as much. Yeah, at, at the same time, I, you know, I don't I didn't mind it. I'm not gonna say like I thought. It, I'm not gonna sit here and say like oh I thought it added a lot to this movie, but I do think I do think that it it provided a powerful conclusion to the movie. For which the actual movie itself, as like with the endings that I've described, like the two different endings, I don't think you get this really emotionally resonant ending for this uh-huh. movie. And I think if the, if that is the one thing the ending was missing, I thought that the last, like you said, you know, minute and a half, two minutes, I thought it really delivered that, and I appreciated it for that. If even if it might have been unnecessary to like deliver the point of the movie. Yeah, I mean. I- I, th- I think that's fair. I mean, I-, I do see the difference between the tone of that last scene and the, you know, the, the scenes that immediately precede it may be wanting to make a more emotional statement. Yeah. But I think, know, I think you I, can make an I argument that a better that. director could have made the actual endings of the movie more power, like more emotionally powerful or resonant. Maybe, but I think Spike Lee's a pretty dang good director. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, oh, sorry. I mean, I realized that might have sounded like I was like d- dissing Spike Lee there, yeah. but I, I should say uh, a director who wanted to keep the movie self-contained might have, you know, manufactured a way to deliver the same emotional resonance within the actual, you know, contained within the actual plot of the movie and not yeah. separate in the set scene. That being said, I didn't mind it. I know you didn't love it, but it it didn't bother me that it was tacked on at the end. Uh, if anything, it, it did it did supplement the kind of lack of an emotional ending to the movie yeah so with that why don't we talk about um maybe some of the performances so you talked about how strong that you thought both john david washington and adam driver um were but maybe if you could talk a little bit more just about how these two men did very well at playing these two men who um are in one sense they come from very different backgrounds but in another sense they find themselves united through the same uh, purpose yeah, no, I, 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 I do want to say, and I think this this fits in well with starting to talk about these characters, that I thought this movie was really slow to start. It, you know, I talk about how the, the pacing or, or the balance of the movie didn't always necessarily feel right to me, and I think that was really evident at the beginning of the film. I thought that this movie didn't really pick up until Adam Driver's character comes into the movie. And I think that, I, I think that John David Washington was doing a good job in the first half hour of the film, but the chemistry that he has with Adam Driver and the performances that they were able to deliver with the two of them on the screen or in the same scenes, I think totally picks the movie up and takes off and never never goes back to like how a, the pace or, the, or maybe the low of the first 20 to 30 minutes. I think in my, in my opinion, uh, and, I, and I don't know if you disagree with this or not, but I think that like... The, the movie, once you get into the actual investigation and, and infiltrating the KKK, this movie picks up dramatically, in it, and it's because of how strong these two performances are. You have John David Washington, who, you know, you've already described the, like his character, right? This person who's really committed to being a police officer, and he has this really difficult struggle 
with uh ter- with is it Patrice? Patrice. Yeah. yeah. You know Patrice, who you know, well, when, before she is aware that he is uh a a, a detective, in undercover the, detective, yeah, an undercover detective is, is you know someone who really you know is committed to saying you know i i absolutely cannot stand the police and then even after she finds out it you know remains persistent in this in this belief and really pushes him to like do something that's not a a part of the police department but he's really committed and you know he puts he makes this role so entirely believable i mean obviously i have not read you know the autobiography that the the real life Ron Stallworth has read, but you know, and obviously I don't know Ron Stallworth, but you know, I believe that John David Washington is Ron Stallworth. Like, absolutely, I think the the charisma that he has on screen, you know, the the way that he's a very endearing character to watch, you know, not quite, you know, you he plays the the role of a rookie in, a, in the police op- department really well because you know he has this air of confidence about him, but you know, there's these little instances where you know you, you you get that he isn't entirely you know he's not he's not the the veteran who always knows what to do right and then you you put that up against the fact that he's also a black man and, and i mean obviously it's not difficult for john david washington to play a black man he's a black man but the point is is that he makes it believable that like you know he really wants to be a police officer he's willing to work in the records room which is where he's like initially put but, you know, he has to endure racism. And, you know, the opening scene of this movie, uh, well, I shouldn't say opening scene, but the opening scene with John David Washington in this movie is this interview that he has to, you know, be a part of the police department. And he's asked, you know, if, uh, you know, essentially if a co, if you know, a fellow police officer, you know, delivers a racial slur towards you, like, how are you going to react? Are you going to turn the other cheek or not? And, you know, I think he really delivers such a strong, like, this is an example of this, but, you know, his response to that, his interactions with those with the chief and I forget the other person, uh, the name of the other character on the screen at that time. I guess it's like the the mayor or something. I'm not even sure. Um, but you know, he's like, if I have to, I will. And you know, the real distress that he's in, like, I can't believe this is something I have to put up with. But you know, I am a complex, nuanced person who is not only a black man. I also want to be a police officer. And I yeah. really appreciate when movies and it, it doesn't surprise me at all that a movie directed by Spike Lee does this because I think, like you said, Spike Lee is a great director with a great vision. But like when you can direct someone, when someone can deliver a performance where they are more than just what their like superficial view on them is, when their characters are three dimensional and nuanced and have identities that are more layered than the color of their skin, something that I really appreciate. Um, and I think that John David Washington, you know is given a role where he has to do that and he fully delivers on it. And then to switch gears to Adam Driver, I think is another character who it's, you know, we learn pretty early on that he's, you know, a Jewish, he's Jewish American, um, that he doesn't necessarily strongly identify with being Jewish, but he still is Jewish. You could say he's culturally Jewish, if not a practicing Jew. And, you know, that's something that Adam Driver's character has to wrestle with. And something that, on screen sometimes in better ways than others i think sometimes there's a little bit more telling than showing uh with his character but adam driver really does a great job fighting and you know the internal struggle that he has with being jewish dealing with the kkk while also realizing like being jewish isn't really that important to him yet nevertheless it's really important to these people he's undercover with uh and so i think that both of these characters do a really good job delivering nuanced performances yeah, I agree. I think that uh, John David Washington has his father's gift in that we look at his performance and maybe there's not one specific thing about it that you can say, 
oh, this is what makes it so great, but mm-hmm. it's just, it just is. Um, I agree and completely. That's how I feel about, about Denzel Washington and, and a lot of movies. Um, I think that he just has a, a very natural gift, and playing a character like this comes very naturally to him, and I think that he does a great job and it is instantly charismatic from the moment he comes on screen. Honestly, I didn't have the same problem as you with not being um, engrossed by the, the beginning. I, I was invested in this movie from the beginning. Uh, I really liked the scene at the um, the college where he, he first goes to the a Black Panther rally. Yeah, that was, um, that was a good scene. And who is it that plays the speaker? Corey um, Hawkins. Corey Hawkins, yes, from Straight Outta Compton. Um, he plays, you know, this speaker who gives this really powerful um, black uh, power speech that that Ron, you know, kind of feels a little conflicted by. Um, and, and I think that that's a very powerful scene. I will say, however, since you did touch on it, that the relationship with Patrice um, was another was maybe the other thing in this movie which kept me from making this a complete bullseye probably mm-hmm. um not in the sense that like i i, I like the, the commentary that we get from their relationship in terms of um you know like you like you were talking about how you know she's someone who's very anti-police and she's like how can you be black and also you know be in the police like because they're they're our enemy um which, you know, is a position that many, many people hold today. Um, mm-hmm. And many, many African-Americans hold today. Um, but Ron is saying, well, no, like, you know, I I understand what you're saying, but also I, I can change it from the inside. Like, I can change the culture. I can change the way that the, the police are, are viewed. Um, so I like that sort of tension in their relationship. I just didn't buy into the fact that these characters would ever be in a relationship in the first place. I think that... I th- it's pretty clear to me that that was just the way that Spike Lee kind of shoehorned in that that, that uh, exact message of, mm-hmm. you know, he, he wanted to get that sort of tension, that sort of conversation in the movie, and so he wrote this relationship with these two characters, but I didn't really believe that these two characters would ever really have a romantic relationship. Um, so that, maybe that was a, a little bit of a sticking point for me, but at the same time, I do like eventually where this relationship goes and the, the, the points that it's able, I mean, the point that it's able to make. Um, as for Adam Driver, I also really like his performance. I think it's very understated, uh, maybe in the way that John David Washington's isn't, but there are all these, there are great, a lot of great moments that he has in this performance and in, in the scenes where he is like in, in the KKK and, you know, doing his inside work um, where you know, he's kind of on the edge. Like somebody has said something really offensive about Jewish people. There's one scene in particular where uh, um, he's taken down into the basement to take a polygraph test. Um, and I think there's just like a moment in this scene, <coughs> and I love the way that Adam Driver plays it, where you're not really sure, oh, is he about to snap and like blow it? Or is he, you know, going to keep up the cover, even though, you know, his, his very personal background is you know being viciously attacked by this person in the KKK, and I really liked his performance because you're never really sure um, which way he's going to go. Like, is he going to be able to keep up the charade? Whereas it's maybe a little bit easier for John David Washington because he's not actually on the ground. Um, he's he only plays Ron when on, when he's on the phone. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then 
the other, you know, the major supporting performance in this movie, which I want to highlight, is Topher Grace, uh, who plays David Duke, and I think he does a great job. And actually, it might be kind of weird to hear his name in this role, but I actually think he's perfectly cast because, you know, we have with David Duke, we we already talked about this, but you know, there's this whole plot line of how oh, he's trying to normalize the KKK, he's trying to, you know, downplay the racist you know, overtones that the KKK is traditionally associated with so that they can infiltrate Washington. Um, and I think that Topher Grace is a great person to do that because he is such an unassuming, uh, you know, actor. He's, he's foreman from, you know, that 70s show. He, you, he's just, he always plays a very lovable, engaging character. Are you kidding? He, he, play, he plays Venom. In that's Saturday true. He does play Venom, but I try <laughs> to forget that movie. Yeah. Um, but he's someone where you, you see him on, on screen and you don't think, oh, this is an evil person. So, in that sense, you can kind of understand how maybe, because uh, of the way Topher Grace plays the role, you can understand how he is able to sort of change the face of the KKK. Because you look at you look at his David Duke and you say, well, he's not, he, he doesn't seem like an, an ugly, nasty racist, you know, he just seems like a normal, normal guy or whatever. Um, so, I think in that sense, he's perfectly cast. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I know that, you know, we were texting a little bit before we started recording yesterday after I saw the movie and you know I'm, I'm not going to say that, that he is better than John David Washington or Adam Driver but he is he, he plays David Duke or who I wanted David Duke to be in this movie pretty much perfectly and that you know every single scene that he's in he's very he's very engaged which is kind of maybe a strange word to, to use to describe a performance but he he really leans into the role i think and and but but not in a, like a tropey stereotypical oh let's let's ham this for you know additional laughs or or yeah. you know ha- ham it up essentially you know turn it up to 11 and, and make this guy like a caricature but you know i mean of, of course if, if you if you ever met david duke you might think he's a caricature i don't know i haven't haven't met the guy i hope i never do but i think that this is exactly what i wanted this role to be and then the payoff of his scenes, especially towards the end, which we've already discussed, is very, very high. Yeah, and I, I actually looked up after the movie because I wanted to know how much of this, you know, subplot was actually real. And you know, I don't think that Ron Stallworth had like an ongoing, you know, relationship with David Duke in the way that this movie portrays that he does over the phone. Mm-hmm. But he, I mean, some of the stuff, some some of the crazy details are actually true, including you know that that Ron Stall or that David Duke did tell Ron. Oh, that he thinks black people pronounce certain words differently, and that's how he can tell if someone's black because they say "ara" instead of "r." Um, yet apparently, that part was not made up. That was actually something that David Duke said. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think Silver Grace does a great job. Honestly, I would love to see. You know, obviously, we have a lot more of the year to go, but I would love to see him in the Oscar talk for this. I think it's it's that good of a supporting performance, and he has that much of a role to play in the movie, and I think he totally sells it. Um, so maybe before we wrap up, let's just talk about sort of in the same way that we did with Crazy Rich Asians, maybe what makes this movie so contemporary. I know we've touched on it some, but I think that one thing that it does really well um, is that it, kind of like I was just talking about with the David Duke character, it looks at racism... It, it, like the, the people who it targets, these people in the KKK are not the, although they are eventually, they're, you know, their relate racist beliefs and their really disgusting prejudices are, you know, 
know, eventually revealed and, and, you know, deepened later in the movie, uh, they're not like people who, when you meet them or when you, you know, when you first see them, you think, oh, these people are, you know, ugly, disgusting racists. Like, they're able to hide it in a way that, um, you know, is a little bit disconcerting and I think is probably a little bit indicative uh, or very much indicative of our, our modern times. You know, obviously we do still have people who are very aggressively outwardly racist and, you know, have no apologies about it. But I think that really what Spike Lee is saying and I think what is what is pretty dead on is that the real threat are people who are sort of the wolves in sheep's clothing who the people, when you meet them, you don't, act, you know, instantly think that uh, this person is harboring these really disgusting racial beliefs but they actually are and, and you know only through a deep relationship are those actually revealed and so I think that that is is a very important aspect to this movie because it looks at a different type of racism that we don't often see in the movies but I think which is definitely very present in our society today yeah one of the, one of the things to this point that really stuck out to me in the movie, which, I mean, I, I haven't studied the history of the KKK, so I don't know if this is just, like, me not being aware, but I was really surprised about, like, how, quote-unquote, like, underground they were trying to be, like, make, like never wanting anyone to call them the clan, right? Calling calling them the organization instead. Right, right. That was something that I thought exactly. was really interesting, and it, this movie definitely tries to, again, I don't, I'm not sure how, how authentic it is to, like, real-life experiences of of Ron Perlman, but I imagine it's pretty accurate. Ron Stallworth. Sorry, what did I say, Perlman? It's because I, it's <laughs> yes, because I just, boy. yeah. Well, it's also just because I saw Three Identical Strangers with Perlman, oh, okay. three psychologists. Anyway, um, Ron Stallworth. But but the point is that this movie I think tries to get at not only the overt acts of racism, right, but the more what what is arguably the more insidious kind of implicit day to day acts of racism, and I think that you get that a lot with the pol- the police officer whose name is escaping me right now, but it has yeah, multiple racist uh, encounters with, with Ron over the course of the film. And I think that I appreciated that aspect of, of the movie because I think if any... I mean, yes, the, the overt acts of racism with, you know, even, even towards the end of the movie when you have Ron being arrested right before... You know the the finale of the film, so to speak. Yeah. You know, getting him you know beaten up by police officers and arrested. Uh, they'll, obviously, those overt acts of racism, sadly, are still relevant today. But this movie also incorporates the more subtle, uh, insidious acts of what might be called implicit racism, and that's something that I really appreciate that it was able to dig deeper. To your point, you know, go go a, you know a layer deeper with the problems that that are relevant today, more than just the you know what might be called the easy way out of just talking about and just showing and just you know, displaying on screen, you know, the, the overt acts of racism, whether that be, you know, them talking about lynching people or them, you know, burning crosses in front of black people's houses and what's and whatnot. Yeah. And I, I, there's even the discussion, you know, early on in their operation where, you know, they sit down with, their supervisor at the police officer, uh, you know, at the police station, and he's saying, oh, well, you know, have they actually threatened that they're going to do violent stuff and all this? And they really haven't. Um, and though eventually that is the way that they're able to succeed is is when they try to, you know, plant a bomb. Um, it shows that, like, well, it's not the point that maybe they're not out here, you know, lynching black people or, or doing 
doing violent things. I couldn't think of a more expressive verb there. Um, but committing acts of violence, um, it, that, that's not really what's important because, you know, they're, they're as you described it, their day-to-day um, lives are constantly filled with these prejudices and those are those need to be expunged from society in the same way that you know overt acts of violence do because it's those types of beliefs that lead to lead to the violence so it's like cutting off the snake's head um so i think that that's a really important discussion that the movie also takes on as well um so i guess moving into the wrap-up phase now um what is your favorite scene or moment from black Klansman? Well, it's going to be one of the two endings, or I guess, well, there's three ending scenes, but one of the, one of the two kind of scenes that we described as, you know, being the, the comedic endings that we were, we were looking for in the movies. And, and the one that I'm going with, I think is going to be the conversation with David Duke, which we've already talked uh, about. So there's no reason to elaborate further. Uh, the other one is also a tight contender. I don't know if that's the one you're going to talk about, but uh, the, the conversation that he has, which we've already, which we've already talked about, so we don't need to rehash it. But it ultimately ends with him revealing himself as a black man. Basically, all I can say is that this this scene emotionally delivers the laughs and the payoff that you could have ever imagined this movie delivering. Yeah, the cheers in the theater that I heard were absolutely warranted, and I even joined in. Um, but I'm actually going to go with another scene in terms. Of, although I agree, those are the those are the two like most enjoyable scenes. Uh, one scene which I think, while not as enjoy, while not as enjoyable in terms of what's going on in the scene, uh, I think is just an incredibly well made and like en- engrossing and mesmerizing scene is we towards the end of the movie after we've had sort of this KKK initiation and Adam Driver has been initiated and we get sort of cutting back and forth between the KKK members, the newly enshrined KKK members who are watching. Uh, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation and like, you know, hollering and, and just yelling out awful racist insults as, you know, the troubling racial uh, scenes in that movie are, are showing on screen. We get that intercut with the Black Power um, supporters in the movie uh, who are listening to a speech from this uh, this ma- this Black man who uh, witnessed like a horrible um uh, instance of race, racial lynching. violence when, no, he, when he, he was he witnessed he was a lynching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so we get that intercut with the scenes of the KKK watching Birth of a Nation, and it's just a really spectacularly well done scene. Um, and I mean, obviously, very very troubling, but uh, very evocative as well. And I was I was really uh, impressed by the filmmaking uh, in that sequence. Yeah, um, I, I, it's it's a great scene. Pro- definitely, like I think cinematically, in terms of like cutting, is definitely the the best scene of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's put a score on it now. I think we're going to be pretty high, but um, how high exactly are you going to go for Black Clans? Yeah, you know, I've 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 thought a lot about this. I think this is definitely one of the better movies. I it, it's I mentioned this at the very beginning that as good as this movie is and as strong as the characters and actors and actresses are in this movie. There were some, I did have a few, uh, not concerns, because they weren't concerns at all, but uh, I had a few issues with the film where I thought it really might have been a bit better. Uh, but ultimately, I am coming out high, and I think 8.4 is where I'm landing. Yeah, and once again, I'm going to be a little bit higher. Um, I think that while this movie 
uh, does have a couple of, of sticking points for me, which I have highlighted. Um, those are far, far outweighed by the riches that this movie has to offer. And I think it's a movie that everyone needs to see. Mm-hmm. I think Donald Trump needs to screen it at the White House. He never will because he's a coward. But uh, that would be very on the nose if he did that. Um, but I would give it a 9.2. I think this is an excellent, excellent film. Yeah, I, I agree that um, this, this film is a must-see. I think that you absolutely have to. I mean, I just I don't have any other way to describe it. I think you have to go see this film. Yeah, and I, I think it's safe to say that uh, Black Klansman is one that will stick with you no matter where you come down on it. Um, yeah. And we're going to take another short break now, however, and when we come back, we will be discussing some other new movies, including Slender Man and Three Identical Strangers. We'll be breaking down Title Week in the Schmodown and closing things out with the latest news items. Be right back. <laughs> As long as those um, thoughts are shorter than the 93-minute runtime of Slender Man, I'm fine with it. Yeah, you know me. I like my brevity, so I think I'll, I think I'll be pretty pretty succinct with this one. Um, you know, if you've seen any of the reviews of this movie, they have not been the greatest, I believe. What did you say? Um, 8%, what, it was it is, it's an 8% on Tomatoes and a 29 on Metacritic. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm not gonna, I, I don't think that this movie is quite as bad as that, that's, those scores suggest. Um, so, so, you know, just for some background, this movie is set in Massachusetts. About, it's about a group of four girls who go to high school together. Um, and they discover the urban legend of the Slender Man, which, of course, is um, a, a fictional um, sort of monster boogeyman, uh, if you will, that was invented online in, um, I think, about 2009 or so. Um, and has since... Um, established a, you know a very deep online mythology there's a very popular uh, free computer game um about the slender man which i used to play with my friends in, in uh, freshman year of college we would put it on the tv we'd turn out all the lights and we'd play this game and it was it was pretty fun and, and scary um but also this movie i mean the slender man also has, has very real world implications i mean there was a double or there was a murder case that happened in um Wisconsin back a few years ago where two girls murdered another one um, because they said the Slender Man like told them to do it or whatever. So, you know, this is, it is well, it started as an urban legend on, you know, I think like Reddit. I, I mean, it started as like a creepy pasta on the internet. Um, you know, it did eventually become something more and now it is, you know, pretty ingrained in um, horror culture. But this is the first movie we've seen about the Slender Man. Um, and I think that you know, it's, it's a it's a missed opportunity because there is so much out there about the Slender Man, and there's so much that um, 
the director, um, whose name is Sylvan White, there's so much that he had to work with, um, and I don't think he makes good use of any of it. Um, I think that the main problem with this movie, while it is well acted by, um, main, the main two actresses are Joey King and Julia Goldani Tellis. Um, I had not seen her before, but I thought she was she was pretty good in this movie as one of the girls. Um, well, I do think that they do a good job, and I think that there are some decent scares in the movie, some decent set pieces. Um, I think that, uh, the, you know, this, it's a missed opportunity because they don't really um, explore the mythology of Slenderman at all. You really get no idea whatsoever of what Slenderman is like, what is he capable of, where does this monster come from. Like, it, it is, it's almost comical how little they flesh out the, the villain of Slenderman. Um, and I think it's, it's crazy that that is the fact because there is so much out there about Slender Man. I mean, this is not a movie like Blair Witch where the directors literally invented all of the mythology themselves. Like, the, you know, Sylvan White and the writers of this movie, they had all of that already out there on the Internet. It's all public domain for them to work with. Uh, and they just didn't really make use of very much of it at all. Now, there are some scenes in the movie which I thought were, were a little were, were hinting at it where the girls are like on the computer they're you know looking up stuff about Slenderman they find like videos that people have left um, you know of like as they're going out to try and find the Slenderman um, and I think that stuff is good that stuff has like a very Blair Witch type feel to it but um, ultimately the movie fails in that aspect because there's not enough of that I mean, I mean those, those moments are very brief and, and, and not long enough and I mean, you know, like Blair Witch obviously was a very engrossing movie, um, and, and really was was all about being in the in the woods and, and all you know the the terror behind that. But also, it had you know this opening 10, 15 minutes of the movie are establishing the mythology, and it's like the documentary aspects where they're all they're going around the town, they're interviewing people. What do you know about the Blair Witch? And so that's really setting the tone for what is to come. And I would have loved to see something like that in Slenderman, just establishing up front. You know who the slender man is what is he capable of um but we don't get that they just kind of thrust us into it with a very weak background um and so you know i it, you never get a you can never really conceptualize what kind of a threat that the slender man poses because of that um so yeah this is i mean you know if you're a big horror fan maybe you can wait for vod on this one but you should probably just watch the player witch project instead because it does a similar type thing but a lot 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 better um but with that being said i don't think this movie is an it's a total and utter bomb like some people have i think that because we because there are so many good horror movies that have come out in the last few years um this one which is just average um, kind of stands out because there have been so many really good ones recently. Um, but I'd give it a 4.5 if I had to put a score on it. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I have to add is, like, the release, con- I mean, the controversy around the film in general, which, so Screen Gems was the production company, I believe, uh, and I know that they tried to shop it to distributors after there were disagreements between them and and the producers on the film, um, like the actual people producing the film. Uh, I know that this they demanded the movie be rated P- Screen Gems demanded that the movie have a PG-13 rating which I know caused the uh, direct the director is it Sil- you said Sylvan White I think is the director yeah. Uh, yeah. to basically forcibly edit out se- several what were described as major scenes over fears of public backlash and the mm. ability to meet the PG-13 rating um, and I know that this resulted in 
well, according to articles that I've read, it resulted in massive transitions and continuity issues within the movie. I don't know if that's something that struck you at all while you were watching. Um, and, so I, I mean, I, I was not aware of that, but I mean, it does make sense. Maybe with some of my criticisms, maybe we did have more exploring who the Slender Man is, but it got cut because of the ratings concern. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know why that would have been cut uh, for rating concerns. I mean, I have no idea what they had shot that got cut. But I know Screen Gems probably... I mean, it sounds like from what I've read, it doesn't sound like Screen Gems wanted anything to do with this movie, even though they ended up with the rights to it. Um, yeah. And so really didn't put any support behind it at all. And, and to that extent, like I think that's I think that's somewhat understandable. I, I think that the real the real life events that you alluded to from back in 2014 were two... Is it middle school age girls? I don't remember how old they were. I think, yeah, or, or I may, maybe they were like 14, I'm not sure. Yeah, so pretty young, like preteen or young teenagers, you know, killing another uh, another one of their classmates because Slenderman told them to. And, you know, I, I remember reading about that story when it hit national news and, and just being really saddened and, and imagining what still those families of, you know, one, the, I mean, the two people who were complicit in, in that murder and then also the girl oh I believe survived I think she did yeah. survive mm-hmm. miraculously survived, yes. miraculously yes. the 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 attempted murder it was only attempted um she was stabbed in like 15 or 20 times or something like that something absolutely horrible uh but I I think that the I can understand why screen gems probably wouldn't want this on their docket I think that I'm not. I mean, this movie doesn't try to recreate that story. That would be particularly insensitive. Um, but I, I know that there are areas of the country, uh, particularly I believe in Wisconsin, where this took place, that refused to screen the movie out of respect for the families. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, and I don't think that they're missing out. Is all I will say. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I don't think that those those fans will be sorry that they missed this movie. Um, Maybe we've given enough airtime to the, to this one. Uh, move on to the next. <laughs> probably, yeah. So, so as you say, move on to the next. And the next movie, which we want to briefly talk about, is one that we have actually both seen. And it's a documentary, um, which I know you just actually recently saw today. So recent that it was five hours ago. Yeah, so recent that it was five hours ago that I saw it. <laughs> yeah, but if you want to introduce this one for us, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. So the second, the second kind of shorter review we wanted to give today was of a documentary which Scott's already talked about, and it's called Three Identical Strangers. This movie actually came out about two months ago. Uh, I think end of June is when it got its its actual release. I think it debuted at maybe South by Southwest or, or something like that. And it it's a documentary about these three uh, triplets who were separated at birth, and then through sort of dumb luck, if you believe that. I think that's. I mean, I'll when I get a little bit more into this, we'll we'll talk about how this movie says. Probably says that it's not dumb luck, or not not entirely dumb luck. Uh, two two of these triplets found each other in college. They both attended the same community college, though not at the same time. And then uh, uh, after this hit national news, that they were you know reunited kind of uh, on uh, on a you know by by chance. This third triplet sees this in the news and and realizes that it's they're not uh, separated twins. They're actually separated triplets. And then the movie. For the first, I think we'll call it the first act to the first half hour, the first third, whatever you want to call it, uh, talks about this kind of story of them being reunited, uh, and you know, in in some ways, this is a, it's it's a really uplifting story. You know, you talk about how these the, these three brothers had been separated at birth, and uh, you know how happy they were. I mean, obviously, they, they didn't know that there were other triplets out there, other people who were them out there, and 
that when they are reunited, the, the joy that brings in their lives is really is really you know heartwarming to to be frank. But the movie takes a pretty stark turn uh, entering its second yes. act, and it really starts to explore. Okay, well, why were these people separated at birth? Well, you know, why did this adoption agency that they all came from not tell the families that adopted these children that they had two other uh, triplets out there? And it, I don't want to spoil the details because I think that the way this documentary unfolds is really, really powerful. I think it's a great storytelling. It's fantastic storytelling. And, but basically the movie does take a stark turn. It, it is not a heartwarming documentary uh, by the end of it. It talks about some really difficult topics to, to well, but one, to think about it, but especially two, to like have laid out on screen. Now, I don't necessarily agree with all the implications that it that it tries to to land on or all the conclusions it attempts to draw and 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 maybe to maybe that's being a little bit unfair to the documentary because i I don't think it actually draws any conclusions it just lays out the 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 beliefs of the people being documented right which is for the large part uh two of the triplets who are in the film and i i think that as much as i might i shouldn't say as much because i don't disagree with that many points in the movie but i think that uh, you know, even if you disagree academically with some of the conclusions it's drawing about some of the topics that it raises, I think that this movie does a really good job of laying that out and showing you the raw emotion of the of the characters, the real life characters on the screen. And, and you know, y- yes, the move, the documentary, like all documentaries, I know the uh, any other documentary that we talked about on this podcast, I bring this up, but like like all documentaries, this movie is a little bit biased, right? Like it is taking things from one perspective. And though there are two exceptions to that, where they have two researchers uh, come on to take on a different, a different side of the side of the story. Um, it, for the large part is only like the only, you know, commentary that you hear is coming from the family members of the three triplets. And so there is some bias latent within that that's unavoidable I think and I, don't, and I don't think that makes the documentary flawed it's just something that you have to acknowledge and but overall I really really enjoy this documentary not for just for the topics it discusses that I think are you know if not culturally relevant uh, but are interesting on a personal level because I studied psychology um, right. which is I was wonder, actually wondering what you thought about some of this psychological stuff in this movie as a psychology major yeah, no, and we can. I I don't know if it's worth talking about on this podcast, but yeah, probably not. Yeah. Um, but no, absolutely, absolutely happy to talk about that. And but but overall, I think this film does a really good job. I I don't think it tries to take too many sides, but like I said, uh, it naturally falls out on the side, of, obviously, of the families because that's largely who you're hearing from. Yeah, so I agree that I think it is very very good storytelling. I think that is what is best about the movie is. I mean, it has an interesting, it has an incredible story, really, and um, it, it tells that story very well, and I, you know, I was very captivated by the story. Um, I think maybe where the movie, where I come down a little softer on this movie than you, is that I didn't really vibe with the fact that it, I mean, as you said, it doesn't really have a conclusion, and I think that it offers all of these theories out there, Um yeah. About oh well maybe it's this maybe, no actually maybe it's you know, maybe it's mental illness maybe it's family you know it, it it offers several different theories but it doesn't really like lend credence to any of them like it doesn't say oh here's what we think here's what it is um, it just felt like they were just kind of sitting on the fence a little bit um, 
as filmmakers. And I didn't really, you know, like that because I thought, well, here you have this great story. You've done all of this great work, um, you know, investigating this whole thing. Like, you have to have some opinion about, you know, mm-hmm. what, what I don't. I'm, I'm trying not to give too much away here, but you, they have, you have to have an have, opinion on, on a on a court on a, on a central tenet of the documentary. It's yes. something that it spends almost an hour exploring. And I agree with you that they they don't explicitly say an opinion. Although I think that they do. I, I mean, I, I think I'm going to disagree. I think that they do. Even if they don't explicitly state their opinion as as well fact as their beliefs, I think that the it, it gives enough airtime to to one side of the story and and one belief, especially towards you know the last montage of scenes that it talks about. That I think that their opinions are pretty. At least to me, it felt pretty clear. And I think that, as a psychology major, I appreciated that, and I think this is the academic in me, right, that like I appreciated that they didn't come down hard on one side or the other. Because I think that, that this, the argument that's taking place at the, on the latter half of the documentary or the different sides of the, of the story, so to speak, I think that the, prob- like, the reason that they can't come down hard is that there isn't, there isn't an actual... Uh, answer to the question the key question being asked like the, the they don't know on one level one because you know the actual story itself doesn't have a conclusion right like the some of the research that is discussed over the documentary mm-hmm. isn't published still sealed yeah yeah it, it's still sealed except for you know the two brothers who they've been given access to and now but like as it describes in like the very last scene like it doesn't draw any conclusion like the research itself doesn't draw any conclusions it's like all redacted yeah exactly yeah and so i think that one there's not an answer and two the answer is probably somewhere in the middle it's not one or the other and i think that that's actually something that i i appreciated the filmmakers not coming out too heavily down too heavily on one side or the other although i do think that they have an opinion that they kind of show their hand on um which probably isn't wrong, but at the same time, I, I don't think that they were as on the fence, uh, at least not in a justifi- an unjustifiable way, because I think any any fence-sitting that takes place from the film from the filmmakers is because the actual answer is that it's not one side of the fence or the other. Yeah, and I mean, maybe there is one theory which they lend a little bit more credence to, mm-hmm. but it just seemed to me like when I was watching... You know, particularly the last third of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was like they would introduce one theory, and I would think, "Oh, okay, so this is what it's about." And then all of a sudden, they would go into a totally different theory, and I was like, "Well, mm-hmm. wait, like, is that the explanation, or is it not?" And I guess, yes, it's it's true that there aren't you know there aren't answers out there, but I mean, I think that's the case with a lot of documentaries. Um, I think that I just wanted more conviction from the filmmakers um, on what they truly believe, like which theory. Um, you know, do they actually think um, is the is the most convincing? Even if it doesn't explain everything, even if, like you say, the the truth maybe is more in the middle somewhere. I just felt like there were all these theories out there, and none of them were lent any more weight than the other. And I mean, maybe that's just my perspective. But I, like I said, I just wanted maybe a little bit more conviction in that final third. But I think it is a very it it, it tells a very good story and is worth seeing. Yeah, I, I think that the film takes it as far as it defensively can in terms of where it comes down, right? Like, I think, I, at least for me, and it sounds like maybe you wouldn't share this opinion, but if the film went any further in, like, taking a side of the story, I would have been a little bit disappointed. Um, but it sounds like you were the opposite, and that's okay. I mean, 
mean, maybe, not necessarily that it, it should have gone further, but just maybe not not given as much airtime to some other theories that you know maybe if they don't if they don't think sure. that that's the explanation, then like don't confuse the issue by introducing these other other theories. Got but it. I, that's I, yeah. just my perspective. But yeah, I hear what I you're would, saying. If I had to give this a score, I would I would give it a seven point out. Like I said, I, cool. I definitely think it is still worth seeing. Yeah. Well. Scott, I think for the first time in the history of this podcast, I'm going to rate a movie higher than you did. No, you were higher on Jurassic World than me. What did I give Jurassic World, 3.0? I think you gave it a 3.5 and I gave it a 2.5. Oh, wow. Well, for a movie that <laughs> we're... Differences, yeah. Well, for a movie that we're, we're rating both positively, this might be the first time I'm giving yes, it a higher rating. True, true. Scott, you know, I it's still really fresh. I saw. I already mentioned that I I walked into the movie theater to see this movie five and a half hours ago as of as of this time. Um, so I, I wonder if I'm overrating it when I say the score, but I think this is a near perfect documentary. Um, and I'm, oh boy. I'm giving it a 10. So, hey, yeah. wow. we finally did it. We both have given tens now. Yep. So there you go. Eighth grade and three identical strangers, two best movies of the year. Thank you. Good night. Yep. Um, that ends all discussions. We're done. <laughs> Wow, so there you go, a 10. Uh, was, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I knew that you liked this movie a lot. I was de- definitely didn't see that coming, I just, but you know, uh, I, I'm, I think it is very good. Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about this as I ate lunch today. I was thinking about when I was walking home from the movie theater. I, I can't think of a complaint, an act like a legitimate major mm-hmm. or minor complaint that I have about this documentary. So. Well, I mean, that's that's great. I, I love seeing tents given out. Like I said, I don't think that tents should be some really magical thing that like is completely unattainable by anything except for movies that are 30 years old. Um, so <laughs> I think that um, it, I, I appreciate that you, uh, you went all the way and, and, and just gave this movie a 10 because if you can't think of a, a flaw in it, then there's no reason to, to hold out on that. Yeah. I mean, um, like the, I, I think this movie legitimately tries to present both sides of the story, right? But they just, like, literally, like, like some of the people were dead, some of the people, yeah. I'm sure, refused to be a part of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I can't fault the movie for that. Because yeah, I, I still absolutely. think even the people they do manage to get to talk about, to talk about on the movie, um, were, uh, g- gave good airtime. Yeah, and I don't think, there weren't, like, a ton of people who I thought, oh, you know, this person could have really added a lot. Like, I feel like they, they covered it pretty well. Yep. Um, Okay, so with that um, being said, let's move on now and talk about the Schmodown. We have had some huge matches. Um, we have new champions um, in both the singles and team division, and we have a new number one contender in the inner geekdom division. Uh, let's talk first about that singles championship match, which saw, uh, of course, the belt was vacant after Sam Levine retired, and we saw a rematch between one of the greatest um, singles matches ever in the showdown between William uh, the Beast Bibiani and Mark the Android Andraco. Um, while this match, in terms of the, the scoring and, and the number of questions answered correctly, did not live up to that first match, um, it was still a, a suspenseful match that, that came down to the last um, question, and William Bibiani walked away victorious. Um, after Andrejko could not come up with the answer to his five-point question, actually came very close to getting it correct. Uh, but I don't know about you, um, Scott, but it honestly, I was, 
you know, just think about it. It almost seemed like Andreco played the better match, even though he lost, because he, you know, he dominated in the speed round. He had a, you know, a good round two where he had some steals from Bibbs, but for once, the last round did not uh, was not Viviani's undoing. Yeah, you know, I think I guess two things I want to say about this match. One, I completely agree with you that I felt like Mark Andreco played the better match, and like it felt strange at the end that he had lost. I know, yeah. And I think part of that is exactly what you've described. Like, he, he seemed... I mean, like, he was winning the whole time. That's one part of it. But two, like, even while he was winning, like, he had some near misses that would have, like, opened up huge leads for him. Like, he missed a he missed a question in the second round. I think it was, like, he said um, Bub, and it was something else. Or, bud. He, yeah, he, or said, he said Bud, and it was Bub. Yeah. Right, like, he missed... And that was a four-point swing right mm-hmm. there. And then in round one, he had he had another question that he like just barely missed, I think, or something like that. So like he left a few. And like, oh god! And also, you know that that very final question, which would have given him the win, he it was asking him to name two actors. He n- named one of them right, and for the second actor, he said Sean William Scott instead of Scott Con. So like he yeah. he was even sort of in the right frame of mind. Yeah, he just exactly. Come up with that answer. Exactly. So. Exactly. Yeah. So I it, that felt weird. It really felt like you know. If they had a rematch, he would win again. I, And then the second thing I want to talk about, and I don't know if this resonates with you, but, like, I feel like I, I want to like Bibiani more than I actually do. Is yeah. that... It, I don't know if you feel the same way, but for me, I find Bibiani to be a really sore loser. And... Yeah. So it, it makes me appreciate it less when he wins. Yeah, I think he straddles that line between face and heel um, in a way that maybe not a lot of people in the league do. Uh to where I, I think I think you're right to say he you know he doesn't always take losing the best. I think you also would be right if you said that he doesn't always take winning the best. Yeah, he's kind of annoying when he wins. Yeah, uh, a little bit. Um, and I think that he's he has kind of mellowed out recently. Maybe in the beginning when he was getting all hyped up, it kind of went to his head a little bit. Um, and now that he's champion, weirdly enough, maybe he's mellowed out a little bit. But I agree with you in the sense that I was still rooting for Mark Andreco to win this match. Um, but it, I mean, and Draco is one of the best competitors in the Schmodown right now. He beat he absolutely. beat Ethan Irwin. Like yes, like Ethan Irwin was a couple names away from from coming out victorious, and maybe Irwin's a better but player. Draco had a very high score. Oh, absolutely, match. yeah. But I think the point is that like Mark and Draco only loses to the best people, and he only loses you know at the end of matches, right? Like yeah. he's not he's not getting crushed randomly. Or he, he never has a bad day. Let's put it that way. He never beats himself. Yeah. Um, but he will be in the Ultimate Showdown, so maybe we will see Viviani versus Andreco three. Yep. Um, and we will, and he's also in the teams tournament. He's in the Anarch tournament with. P- I think we both selected his team to win the Ultimate Showdown tournament. So. Yeah, and I will. I, do, I will say that I think we're getting another singles title match before we actually get to the whoever wins the Ultimate Showdown. Yep. Now with what is going on between uh, Ben Bateman and John uh, Roca. John Roca, Andrew Guy, and Mark Riley. Yeah. Uh, so we know of course, that Ben Bateman is out of the picture on that now. Because okay. Well, he was I was going to say, don't Roca. don't spoil it because it was a Patreon match. But well, oh well. Uh, yeah, it's but, out there. I mean, they'll find out soon enough. John Roca uh, defeated Ben Bateman in this match. I don't know that there's a lot to say. It was a close match. It came down to the last question. Um, ben, as always, you never know whether he's stalling or not. Um, but the outlaw came out on top, and Ben couldn't actually pull that last answer. And you know, the outlaw is one of those people who, just when you think that maybe he's over the hill, and just when you think maybe it's time for him to step away, 
he wins the big match, and he's right back in the thick of it. So he'll be getting the winner of Guy and Riley now, and I believe the winner of that will get Bibiani. That is um, true. Bef- before Bibiani will face the ultimate Schmodown winner. So we'll see. I, I mean, I can't see Bibbs defending the belt as long as Sam Levine did, but he does have a lot of knowledge for sure. I just, you know, I just can't wait for Andrew Guy to hold the belt. You know, that's all I'm going to say. Where's the belt? Um, Wouldn't that be crazy if Andrew Guy is the, is the singles champion and Ben Bateman is Yeah, especially because he would he would get there. I guess he would have had, he would have to win three matches yeah. to get there. He'd be four. He'd be four now. He would have to beat Riley and then beat his dad John Roca. But <laughs> yeah, it would be incredible if he was able to get to that title match. First of all, not playing in the singles division until Collision this year, and then get to the to the title match by winning his first three matches against Merle, Riley, and Roca, yeah. the three best champions. Well, I mean, Levine is in there too, but three of the four best champions in the Schmodown ever. Like, if he was able to do that, it would be pretty incredible. But I don't know. Uh, it might, we're going to really see if it was a fluke or not, uh, his win against Merle, uh, when he faces Mark Riley next week. Um, we, we will see. I, I, I've also wondered that myself, but regardless of whether it was a fluke or not, or, or whether some people I think have argued that uh, the, the questions were a little bit, a little bit kind to Andrew yeah. Guy in that match. But, you know, regardless, it's still, it's still created moment of the year for me so far. So. Absolutely. Which, yeah, which I, I will say, moment, moment of the year candidate, though, for the next match we're about to talk about is uh, yeah. the, the, the recent team title match where the, post, the, the post-match you know, press interview Interviews, of, yeah. of Clark Wolf and Absolutely. Um, Rachel Cushing and you know, what they talked about after they defeated Brienne and her mystery partner, which we found out was... Uh, Brian, uh, Bald Brian Bishop yeah, from Bald, the Adam Carolla show. Yes. Yeah. Bald um, Brian, but anyway, like they're, they're competing for a moment of the year for me so far is with you know that moment where Andrew Guy beats Dan Merle is this post match interview where you hear Clark Wolf talking in, in tears about uh, what this means to her, what this means for the Schmodown, um, have having uh, champions who happen to be female. Um, that is, it's it's a it's a moment that the Schmodown has you know, been close to several times before just this year, uh, and to have it finally be here is powerful. Yeah, it was great to finally see that, and you know, we did, going into this match, we still had the wild card of uh, who was Brienne's partner going to be, but even still, it felt like this match was going to be kind of a formality, that it really was just the Shire Wolves, like, their their coronation was... um, this was just simply a, a, a simple matter for them, and mm-hmm. then they were going to be the champions, which is, of course, how it worked out. Didn't even make it to round five um, against Brienne and um, Brian Bishop, who Brian Bishop shared off some nice knowledge. You know, I'd like to see him back in the showdown, mm-hmm. but I think that this was, you know, the Shire Wolves to lose, kind of like I said. And like you said, I think that um, that last interview was really um, was really powerful, just because you know Clark Wolf. I mean, Rachel and Clark, but Clark especially because she's been in the league for longer. Um, you know, they, they honestly, they really, really have earned their way to this title, um, you know, more than probably any other champions in terms of, I mean, maybe Sam Levine, in terms of how long it took them to get to the, to the title. Um, you know, Clark had two title matches before this, and... Um, lost actually three if you count her title match with the Wolves of Steel as well and lost all of those Rachel um, had a title match earlier this year 
um, and and uh, lost in that. Um, so, it, I mean, this really was long overdue, and you know, the people who are on in the Facebook community saying that the Shirewolves didn't earn this uh, title shot. I mean, it's just it's totally absurd. Like, number one, if you look at you know who the Shire Wolves face, and actually somebody last night ended up posting all of the stats and showing basically that the Shire Wolves had a even had a much harder path to the championship than the Patriots had when they first won the championship, uh, and kind of silenced everybody. But you know it's it's ridiculous if you look at who the Shire Wolves face, and it's also ridiculous at, if you look at Clark and Rachel's individual history and what led to them getting to this moment because you know they have played in, between the two of them they've played every single you know great player there has been in this league from Merle to Roca to Mark Ellis to, you know, yep. they, they played, they played them all. So to say that they haven't earned this is, is completely ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I saw that yesterday on the Facebook page and I, I yeah. was pretty disappointed in that segment. Although I, you know, I, I'd like to believe it's a minority segment that's just vocal. Um, yeah. but I was really disappointed with that part of the community. And great to see Emma Five finally get a belt as well. You know, this is the fourth time that the Five Club has had a title match this year. You know, all three of their members were beaten in a singles title match. Uh, So I know it was frustrating for Emma probably as, you know, having done such a great job as she has managerially. But uh, so, she, you know, she gets to to share in the the victory of the belt the Shirewolves won. Um, And I guess, so, so I guess the last thing to talk about is just briefly about what happened in the inner geekdom division. So we had, mm-hmm. uh, Mara Kanopic, the Brown Dwarf star, um, shining uh, bright. Quick, I will say has quickly become one of my favorite characters in the showdown. Like I think her personality is hilarious. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, she, she really adds something that we, we don't have in the showdown. Yeah. Well, um, like so half was, of her matches, she's been like high on oxycodone. So like, yeah, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see when, when she actually like I know because she was in a car accident right before her right, semifinal right. match with Rachel. Um, so it'll be nice to see by the hopefully by the live event, event she'll be feeling better. Um, it'll be it'll be nice to see her against which I, I know I just kind of jumped the gun there, but she did no, defeat no, no. Mike Kalinowski and right. she will be playing Jason Inman at the live event um, in just two weeks time. And I think I, I mean I'm personally really excited to see that. And of course, we'll wait an additional week to see that match. But uh, for me, I I. You know, by the end of it, part of me kind of wanted Kalinowski to go yeah. all the way through the end of this tournament. I would have liked to see what would have happened. Just like, like what was the, where would the storyline have gone if KO had won? Yeah. But I think that the the, the Kalinowski storyline has has developed so nicely uh, because I think it is like he he's he is a heel in the sense that everyone boos him and you know he has this kind of you know, pessimistic attitude, but also, like, you can't fault anything that he did. Like, like he, he keeps bringing up the point, and he's right. He's like, look, Mara wouldn't be in the league if it wasn't for me, like, if it wasn't for starting the Intergeekdom tournament. And we have the Anarchy tournament now, which I think is going to be really entertaining, which also would be a thing if not for Mike. So, uh, you know, I think it's an interesting way, direction that it's gone in because he's not full heel in the sense that he's like, doing nefarious things but it's just the way that he's doing that that has rubbed people the wrong way um but so as far as that title match goes um i want to i want to hear your prediction um so we have obviously the champion jason edmund he's defended the belt once and but he's going up against i think probably the biggest challenge he's had so far 
uh, in in Maranakanopic. So, uh, who do you think is going to win this title match at the live event on September eighth? Yeah, well, I think to be to give my perspective, I I need to go rewatch some of Jason Newman's matches because uh, right. we haven't seen him in a while, right? Like all the Intergeekdom matches we've been seeing are part of this tournament. He's obviously not in this uh-huh. tournament because he's the title holder. Um, but I was a little bit surprised by how like uh, let me rephrase this. I'll start over. I think that Mara is not as good as we thought she was after her, like, first match. Um, Interesting, okay. Because I think that, like, we saw her in her first match, and she was, like, I mean, she was amazing. Yeah. Um, And I think that my, I feel like I have a better sense of exactly how good she is, which is way above average, right? But, like, not as unbeatable as I maybe originally thought she might be. And I'm really curious if Jason Inman is, is is good enough. Like, he's way more experienced in terms of the league, right? Yes, Mara has played four matches now, which is which is a large number of matches. I'm, I'm, I don't mean to say especially that. Especially in the Inner Game. Especially yeah. in the Inner Game. You're right, absolutely. But I feel like she's, she's not as experienced just because she's only been in the league for two months, three months, whatever, mm-hmm. right? And I, well, I was surprised that she wasn't better at... You know the the speed round, for example. Yeah, I was um, going to point that out that she. I mean, she, maybe this was the medication, but honestly, she probably like is. she was asleep during the speed round. Like, I don't think her hand even moved like during that entire speed round. And I mean, I think uh, Kalinowski got like four points in the speed round. Um, yeah. So she's definitely that's definitely something that she's going to have to work on before this match with Jason Inman because he has done really well in the speed round. I was going to say, I think that she's going to have to improve particularly, well, in the non-traditional rounds, particularly the speed round, in order to have, uh, in order to be the favorite for winning this. Because I I think on paper, she probably is a stronger player than Inman. Again, like I said, that might be being unfair to Inman. I mean, he's, he has the title and has defended it. Um, I just haven't seen him in a while. He's not top of mind for me, to be honest. Um, but I think that if, if she can improve it, and you know, absolutely, may, maybe it is the medication, right? It, honestly, it could be. Uh, but she's going to need to get sharper on the buzzers, and uh, in general, just like shore up some of the some of the depth holes that she might have. Uh, I I do think though at the same time, I, I think she's probably stronger in terms of breadth of knowledge, maybe not depth um, in all cases. But like her Indiana Jones pull, I mean, I know her intro yeah. entrance music is the Indiana Jones theme. But holy crap! I mean, I, I know people complain that like Kalinowski's five pointer was insane, and I agree. It might be the most difficult five pointer I've ever heard. Um, but it's not like Mara's was like a two pointer either. So. Yeah, absolutely not. And you know, I this is a really tough match to call. I think because for all the reasons that you've pointed out, um, I also think you know the fact that we ha- that Jason hasn't played in a while. You know, has he been studying up? Will all of this be fresh in his mind when he gets up there? Obviously, he's done really well in his last matches. But I do think this is going to be the biggest test that he's had. I mean, I think that Mara is, is definitely a stronger player than Mark Donica and, and probably stronger than Hector Navarro at this point. Um, I agree. I mean, Hector was beaten in the first round of this tournament this year. Um, so I, I think that this is going to be his biggest test, and I could definitely see this being a match that comes down to the last question. But I think I'm going to go with Jason just because of the speed round thing. Um, I think that, you know, that can be a, a big determinant a lot of times. But also, I think we've seen that maybe it's not because we had, you know, what happened in the Intergeekta match with Kalinowski getting four points. And then in the singles title match, we had a very similar breakdown where Android got all of the points in the speed round. He got well, like three points in the speed round. No, he actually only got one point in the speed round. Really? 
questions in? Yeah, he buzzed in on all of them. Um, too. Well, he was getting there a lot quicker than Bibiani, and Emma Feist even roasted Bibiani for that um, mm-hmm. after the match. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so I think I, I'm going to give Jason the slight edge, but I could definitely see it going either way. Yeah, um, I, I'm, yeah. I'm really torn. I think that I'm going to go with Mara. Um, mm-hmm. But again, like I, I mean, I definitely I want Mara to win, even though I like Jason. Yeah, I I think Mara will win because I think that she will be more polished in the speed round than she uh-huh. was last time. But I mean, if Inman's been practicing, yeah, I, I could just be under under uh, underestimating his his knowledge just because of lack of recency. Yeah, it is, I mean that is fair because we haven't seen him in a while. But uh, with that. Let's move on to our final segment of the day, which is just a few news items that we have. Um, first of all, following up from our last episode, something we talked about, uh, James Gunn, of course, the big controversy with him and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. You know, he was, the, the tweets were dug up. Um, and then a lot of Guardians of the Galaxy stars and other celebrities rallied to his support, which, uh, you know, I have my own thoughts about, but uh, Disney has come out and said since our last recording that James Gunn will not be um, directing Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, and that the movie has kind of been put on hold um, in general uh, until they can figure out what's going on. Yeah, I, I remember when I was, I was reading some news articles about this, I think the particular actor that was kind of really in the corner of uh, Dave Bautista yeah. was Dave Bautista. Yep, absolutely. He he was the one who was pretty much threatening to, to leave the franchise over it, um, mm-hmm. and we'll see if he does. Yeah, um, and it also in directorial news, um, another big news item from this past week was that Danny Boyle um, has dropped out of directing the twenty fifth James Bond film. Um, you know, we don't know whether this will have any implications for Daniel Craig starring in the film. I'm, tend- I'm, I'm tempted to say that it won't, just because he's worked with different directors in the past. I don't know that he's really, like, deeply committed to Danny Boyle as a director in the same way that, like, Dave Bautista is with James Gunn, like we were just talking well, about. Well, I mean, that being said, the last two movies have been done, done by Sam Mendes, so... Yes, that's true. So, but it's not like Sam Mendes was doing the newest movie, so it's not like he's getting torn away. Right. It's not the same, to your point. It'll be, but, but like, you know, Casino Royale was Martin Campbell, and then, mm-hmm. did he direct Quantum of Solace as well? I don't no, know. No, it was but, Ma- um, Mark Forster directed Quantum of Solace. Okay. Yeah, but anyway, um, I, I think that'll be interesting to see who is replaces him there, because one of the names that I've seen floating around, which is very exciting to me, is Edgar Wright as a potential director for this movie, um, which I would love to see how that would go down. Um but, um, you know, it remains to be seen whether he will actually be hired. Yeah, you know, and we're, go- we're going on now where we could end up having, you know, the biggest gap between Bond movies. Yeah. I mean, this originally was set for 2019, right? I, I don't think that's going to happen anymore. And so the, the longest uh, time differential between movies, for, between Bond movies, was in, I think it was between License to Kill and Goldeneye, which was, I think, six years. So, I mean, I think this has easily uh-huh. been pushed back to 2020 now if not further. Yeah. Um, some other news, which maybe is only tangentially related to movies, but which I'm very, very excited about, so I wanted to make a mention of it, but one of my favorite TV shows uh, of all time, which was later made into a film as well, um, is coming back for an eight-episode eight limited series on Hulu, and that is Veronica Mars, 
Uh, Rob Thomas, the creator, will be back to helm this reboot, and Kristen Bell will once again be starring. Uh, this is, of course, the you know uh, high school drama. It used to be a high school drama before Veronica graduated, but it started as a high school drama about um, a girl who uh, helps her father, who's a private detective, and sort of um, it's it's sort of a grown up, uh, more grown up version of Nancy Drew, if you will. Um, but it um, it is like I said, it is one of my favorite shows of all time. It's not my absolute favorite. Um, I've seen all of the episodes multiple times. Um, it, and I think it really stri- speaks to the strength of this fan community that we're still, Veronica Mars is still happening because, I mean, the show ran for only three seasons um, and ended back in 2007. We then, it waited seven years and then we actually got a movie in 2014 after a GoFundMe was started up. And, but that still wasn't enough. And, here we are four years later and we're going to get a reboot so I mean I love how how devoted the fan base is but it's not often that you see a show that lasts only three seasons um, even ones that have cult followings um, that you know even you know ten years after the show has gone off the air we're still getting new yep. content um, and I think it you know it speaks to how the quality of the show and also you know how the, the bond maybe that all of the actors um, felt and I know that Kristen Bell especially like really attributes the, her, the rest of her career to you know Veronica Mars which really was her first starring role yeah I, I mean it's something that the Firefly cult fan base I'm sure would love to to be able to, to yeah <laughs> create uh, a, another Twin Peaks 2 is another example of the show that you know has been off the air since the 90s but thanks to the fans got uh, rebooted third season this past year yeah oh and to be clear though the the firefly fans have not gotten their wishes and no yes no uh, i know yeah yeah yeah. but they they did get one movie but that was that's been 15 years now so yeah um yeah but so that's exciting um and a little bit of casting news um the greta gerwig directed little women film has had a casting change um has had a change in Emma's actually Emma Stone is going to be replaced by Emma Watson um and I am excited about this you know love both of those actresses but I feel like maybe this movie is a little bit more up Emma Watson's alley than Emma Stone's alley um really so yeah I mean it's kind of a period piece you know a little bit of a costume drama probably didn't didn't Emma Stone do like the help I feel like this movie is like I don't yeah, I mean, there there is that, but yeah. uh, I, I don't know. I, I tend to think of Emma Watson more in those roles. But, you know, of course, we don't know what kind of interpretation Greta Gerwig is also going to give to this movie. But... Maybe it'll be set in Sacramento. <laughs> I think Saoirse Ronan is, is in the movie, is she not? I, I, I'm not sure, but... Um, I believe it. Either way, I'm excited for it. Um, another bit of casting news, and this is just a rumor, but it's such a juicy one that I wanted to briefly touch on it. Um, Tom Cruise is uh, there are rumors floating around that he may be playing Green Lantern in some sort of new Green Lantern project Amazing, uh, which I would love um, you know, I mean I've shared my thoughts about Tom Cruise on the last episode um, and I think especially for a franchise which Green Lantern like, like Green Lantern which has become sort of a laughing stock after the last film uh, I think he would be a perfect person to revitalize the Green Lantern name yeah, I I totally agree. I was <laughs> I saw this rumor and it made me laugh because Tom Cruise was one of the original people who was on like a short list with Robert Downey Jr. to play Iron Man. 
interesting. I don't, I don't know if you knew that, um, but I imagine the initial signing would, but it would have cost Marvel too much with an unproven franchise. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it's it's awesome to see him rumored to be in a role like that. I I don't know if I can actually picture it in my head. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm still <laughs> trying to as well, but but oh, I'd be so into it. Absolutely. Um, and then the last thing which I have to hound um, is simply I have written on my sheet here that the Oscars have jumped the shark. Um, and what I mean by that is they came out with an announcement, the Academy. Um, there, were, there were a few parts of the announcement, but really the main takeaway was that uh, the Oscars are now going to have a category for outstanding achievement in popular film, which I think for an awards show that was already bordering on a joke, this is, I mean, this is above and beyond, like, the condescending way that they're inventing a category for popular film. I mean, they're really just recognizing that, like, they as an academy are like, oh, we're never going to recognize a popular film as, like, the best picture of the year. Like, it's really condescending to directors. I mean, like, let's say, like, Christopher McQuarrie, who just made an amazing summer movie in Mission Impossible uh, Fallout. Yeah, I mean, it's basically saying to them, well, keep trying, but no matter how good it is, you're never actually going to get nominated for Best Picture, which is just stupid because in any year, you can find two or three popular films which are better than at least one of the, you know, Best Picture nominees and warrant, uh, you know, a, a Best Picture nominee. So I think that this is just insulting and dumb and is going to have the opposite effect of, I mean, like, obviously they're trying to draw more viewers to the telecasts because, you know, your average viewer may not have seen Lady Bird or whatever, but I think that that's not also not giving the average person enough credit in terms of their movie-going habits. I think it's, it's, it's insulting to the audience as well for them to say, oh, we have to invent this separate category for dummies like you who can only appreciate Black Panther and, you know, big action movies who can't, re- who can't appreciate a movie like The Florida Project. We have to, you know, we have to invent a separate category for you. Um, so I just think this is an awful idea. Um, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on it, but... I agree. I don't have... Honestly, I don't really have anything to add. It's, it's, it's in such bad taste. It's, um... I don't understand it. Like, if they were gonna... Like, a better way to do this would to add, like, category... Like, ju- like genre categories. Like, best action film, best horror film. Or thing. just nominate them for best picture like they deserve. Right. I think that... I was gonna... That, I mean, that's what I was gonna follow up, right? I was gonna say, like... Or you could argue that, like, best picture should have, like the best films in each category of or I should say in each genre and then you have like wild cards basically um in my mind like that that would be a more justifiable way to like incorporate quote unquote popular movies which is just so backhanded to begin with I don't uh, I I just think it's so dis I mean like I I I have liked the Oscars in the past for what it is and but like recognizing what it is and acknowledging what it is um, and this just, it has, it has a bad, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Like, like, what is popular, like, popular film, what? Like, they're just gonna go look at, like, Box Office Mojo and look at, like, the top ten films from the year and nominate those. Like, I don't even understand I, yeah, what that means. Yeah, are we talking about, I mean, I guess we're talking about the quality of the film, or is it just, like, here are the most popular movies? Like, that can't, I mean, surely they're not gonna do that. But one interesting thing I did see in light of this is that Marvel is apparently still lobbying for Black Panther to be nominated in the Best Picture category, despite 
best popular film, which, which I hope a lot of studios will do just to kind of expose this for the joke that it is. Like, I hope that, you know, studios will say, well, screw you. Like, we want this movie to be nominated for best picture, so we're not even going to campaign for best popular film because so, many, so much of it is about the campaign. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I hope, like, to that point, and this is something that I wanted to mention before this, like, I hope that no, I hope that no studio goes to the Academy and lobbies for the film to be best popular. Like, it's, it's just such, like, I just want to use, like, curse words to describe this. I'm just like, it's so frustrating. Like, it's just such a joke. It's such a joke. It's like, oh, like, here's an Oscar category for films that, like, were just too uppity to, like, actually nominate. And, yeah, yeah we want you to come to us and tell us, like, oh, yeah, like, here's my, in the Academy's eyes, second-rate film, please nominate it. Like, it's so insulting to me. Um, and I and I really hope that, like, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Marvel, slash Disney, like, whatever, I hope none of them campaign for their movies to be in this category. Yeah, and it's, it's it, you know, it's interesting to think about, too, because this is almost, in a way, it's been going on already, because we have separate categories for best animated feature, for even, you know, best documentary feature. I think best foreign language is maybe a little different, and I understand why you would have a separate category for that, but you can almost apply the same logic to a best animated feature category and say, well, this is, you know, this is insulting to animated directors, basically saying you're never going to get nominated for best picture, which not many animated movies ever have. Um, yep. So, but I think, you know, that, that, that this popular film category just highlights how silly it is um, on an even deeper level I mean that's what I was saying too like if the way they were going to do it they could have expanded off of like what they've done with the animated or documentary categories yeah Um, maybe but but at the same time I totally agree like I think that I mean I like that animated movie like get get coverage because I think that those are the kind of movies that don't ever really even get much advertisement in like like at least like the with quote-unquote popular movies like everyone knows about them right but like yes. a lot of animated movies you just never hear about. So in some ways I kind of appreciate the fact that they get called out. Although I totally agree that if you if if it's this call out that they're getting is replacing like their ability to like actually be recognized as as good deserving movies of best like best picture nominations. Like right. I mean I haven't I'm not a religious uh, moviegoer in terms of animated films. Like I wish I see more than I do. But like when I saw Inside Out or Zootopia, like those are some of my favorite movies from those years. Yeah. Um, and that's just like more recently, like. And that's I mean I feel the same way about like the Lego Movie and Beckett Ralph. I mean, those are best picture worthy movies. Yep, absolutely. So. And I think maybe maybe what we're getting at here is that the, the solution perhaps is to add more nominees for best picture, and they've done it in the past. But I would not certainly would not be opposed to you know having fifteen or eighteen movies nominated for best picture because I mean I think there's you know fifteen or eighteen great movies in every year like. I don't think that it's totally absurd to nominate that amount of movies, especially if it means including, um, you know, Mission Impossible and Inside Out and stuff like that alongside, you know, more quote-unquote cerebral films, um, you know, where they where, where those movies deserve to be. Yep. I mean, your movie has to be in a certain genre to become Best Picture. I mean, yeah, that's, that's what they're saying. Your movie basically has to be a drama. That's basically it. Because... When, I mean, comedies don't really get nominated unless it's something like Lady Bird, which fuses comedy and drama together. Yep. Like, it's it's ridiculous. But um, we're gonna. I guess we're gonna end on that. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll get off our soapbox. Pressing that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get off. We'll get off our soap soapboxing 
and close things out. I think that should just about do it um, for this episode. Scott, where can our lovely listeners find you on Twitter? I am at SShelton2013 on Twitter. Please follow me there. I don't, like I said, I, I mean, I've said this on previous podcasts. I don't tweet that much. Uh, if they if they want to if they want someone who gets a little bit more action on Twitter, they should hit you up. And where can people find you? Yeah, uh, I will be at Scarby Dent. And yes, I probably tweet too much, so I balance out Scott's. Uh, you tweets for the uh, both of us. Yeah, I do, and and, and retweet. But um, yes, yeah. So you can find me there. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Something Like It, Scott. Uh, if you have and you'd like to support the show, don't forget our, about our Patreon page. Uh, but if you choose not to support our Patreon, that is okay as well. We would love it if you rated, review, rated, reviewed, and subscribed to our podcast on iTunes so that we can continue to grow our listener base. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode on which, God willing, we will be reviewing Searching and Juliet Naked. Uh, for now, I'm Scott Harvey. For Scott Shelton, we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody.